How's everyone getting on? I have uh, Holly Kerboy here on the podcast. Holly, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. Yeah. So listen, thanks very much for coming on. Um, I first, I suppose, proposed the idea of coming on the podcast a couple of months ago and you're apprehensive and understandably so. This is your first podcast, I believe. It is, yeah. Yeah, um, and I just remember my first podcast coming on, uh, the thoughts of doing it. Uh, I was very anxious and um, quite apprehensive, but aware of that resistance. And that was nearly, I suppose, one of the motivating factors of me wanting to do it. Uh, was that similar for yourself? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I was definitely uh, resistant. <laughs> I know I had to be chased for a little while to actually come on and do yeah, it, but yeah. it was definitely a mental block. Um, you know, thinking about what have I got to contribute? Um, but I'm hoping that this will, will, you know, challenge some of those expectations and thoughts that I had about myself today. Yeah, great. And like that you had that awareness. But I, I just find that so interesting because, you know, you're someone that has uh, like dedicated how many years? 11. 11 years of your life to the study of psychology mm. to the point that, you know, you're now a qualified doctor to speak about the matter. Mm. So um, you're more qualified than 99% of the population. And yet don't feel qualified enough. And don't feel qualified enough to come on and have this conversation or at least, you know, you still have them uh, trains of thinking in your mind that are like self-doubt. What have I got to contribute? Um, I wonder, is that just something that regardless of where we are at in life and how qualified we are or how developed we are, that them doubts will, are just a natural uh, phenomenon that arises in the mind? Probably, yeah. I mean, they kind of keep us in our station, don't they? Um, so there's a couple of thoughts about it, whether I know it's that that sort of imposter syndrome piece is a, is big for women. Um, and I'd always consider is it, is it maybe less so for men? And I know it, it may have been something that's come up, you know, just as you were saying, something that's come up for you in terms of starting a podcast or coming on to your first podcast. Um, so obviously, I mean, it seems like a very human experience. Um, I wonder then as me as a woman experiencing that coupled being an Irish person, <laughs> you know, does that compound it? Because as, as yeah. an Irish person, you know, we, you know, there's a huge grievance against notions. So, you know, thinking about doing something that's too grand for you or, you know, again, thinking about be, being above your station, that's a big no-no in Irish society. So I it suppose is. coupling both of those makes it hard to step out of your comfort zone. Yeah, because I've thought about that myself a little bit in terms of like the natural human condition and apprehension to stand out, maybe from the biological perspective, mm. because you needed to fit in for survival. Uh, would you say that's kind of the expression of the human condition that we probably all have? Yeah, yeah. And then the added layer of being in a society that I suppose was colonized, where it wasn't beneficial for us to stand out and maybe... I'm just imagining it like if I was in a in a family, uh, you know, during the period when we were colonized and I had a, a big personality or my own opinions and I tried to stand out. I can only imagine my own family being like, you know, shut up, you know, get in line, like don't be talking. Um, and then just that over so many different generations, like would you think that's plays into or contributes to that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's um, a great kind of humility, I think, as well about being Irish, um, whether that's to our detriment or not, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm unsure. Um, and, 
you know, it's really interesting there when you're saying that, you know, particularly in my in my kind of family system, I may be told to get, you know, get back, get down. Um, I wonder, is there kind of an alpha male part in that as well? You know, would that have come from older males in the family? And I wonder, as you know, you grow older or you become the head of your family system, would, you know, you step into that bigger role? Yeah. Either. So do you mean like uh, like traditionally like men were the head of the family, mm. like they were responsible to provide and ensure the safety of the family? So uh, from the point of view of them, it was more beneficial to have a family that just kept it themselves put the head down, didn't stand out because maybe the concerns of, you know, men who felt responsible for their families was, um, God, like my kids or family could easily be arrested here. Or maybe there's concerns about making enough money to feed them um, or just witnessing what else was happening in Ireland. Because I suppose even like such small um, actions like speaking our own language or uh, speaking back um, was had such harsh consequ- consequences. Mm, yeah, definitely. See that plays into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and kind of keeping in that unit, you know, that family unit. Yeah. Um, I think even more so than that, there is that um, the, the I suppose the bit about women as well, Irish women, um, and how that all plays into it and how that's a hugely, you know, generational thing that men were head of the family, men went to work, women didn't, they stayed at home, they didn't, you know, at, at certain periods of time, their their opinions weren't valued, for example. Not long ago either. Not too long ago. No. Yeah. I think so we kind of take that for granted, the residue from that, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, from that. Yeah, exactly. So um, women, quite recently, they're only kind of forging their way to the forefront um, of, you know, certain careers and that kind of thing. And, and in a lot of careers, they're really having to work uh, or in, in kind of a lot of fields, they're really having to work and elbow their way in, but are still being told there's not a place for you yet, hopefully, um, and are having to put in so much work. And and there's a kind of a statistic, which I'll probably get wrong, but I find fascinating which is that men will put themselves forward for a job if they've got about 60% of the desired or essential criteria, but women will only put themselves for, themselves forward if they have 100% or 90 or 100%, you know, which speaks to just the confidence. Yeah. You know, um, or the audacity. No, the, the, the confidence, <laughs> you know, to put yourself forward. Is that a, is that a, um, that's, that's really interesting. And I suppose I always remember in primary school, like our secondary school, well, not secondary school, but primary school, like, uh, and maybe this is my perception, but girls at the time did seem to have more attention to detail, you know, um, and that just seems to be correlated to what you're saying there. But I wonder if with men um, behaving that way, is that a cultural conditioning or is that like something to do with testosterone um, and like the desire to rise and take the leap in order to demonstrate or, or you know, themselves mm. and uh you know, it's an ego move almost. There might be an element of that, yeah, but I think conditioning plays a big role. Conditioning? Yeah, I mean, even think about as a young child, boys are told to go out on the road, to take risks, to yeah. do that. You know, they're, if you see on the front of boys' magazines, it's be a doctor, be an engineer. And then on the front of girls' kids' magazines, it's be pretty. Mm. And here's some glitter. Yeah. So, you know, we're not told to go follow your dreams and, you know, take the risk and take the leap and, you know, we'll see what happens. So we're kind of told to... 
take measured steps. Again, don't go above your station um, and don't do something unless you're going to get it right. And I know that's not not exact, you know, but um, it certainly makes it harder, I think, for women to put themselves out there, you know. It's, it's interesting. So what you're saying is that like how women have kind of been conditioned uh, from young girls is to stay in your station, be meticulous. Um, and nearly women in that statistic that you gave uh, only going forward when you have 100% is them in their own minds feeling like they have to go way above and beyond before they can even think about making that step towards whatever the goal might be. Perhaps, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even thinking about, you know, when that woman does get the job, um, I mean, I won't go into the, the the pay gap or anything, but thinking about when a woman is angling for or trying to negotiate their pay, um, they'll often negotiate or they won't negotiate enough. Um, and again, I'm not sure if that's a risk taking thing or if just the conditioning is that you take what you're given or you be nice because women are nice, you know. Do you think that's a, a conditioning of maybe uh, women not encouraged to be assertive? You know, or yeah, I think again, as opposed there's that, to like men have that kind of yeah, I think there's that identity thing, that real societal um thing. I guess that's for so long held women women back or told women, you know, that they're homemakers or that that they're not for the workforce. So now when they're establishing themselves brilliantly in the workforce, there's still those steps to take, um, those last steps about. Uh, pay that's good enough or remuneration that's good enough. Where does that come from in Irish culture that women are the homeowner, like the, the, they stay at home, they cook, they take care of the family? Like, do you have any insight into the origins of that in Irish culture? Or? Well, I don't know if it's just Irish, is no, it? No, it's not. No, it? because, I mean, it's women who bear children. Yeah. So traditionally they would have been the caretakers, you know, um, the, so they would have stayed home and done the, the more caring yeah. Taking the more caring role. Even from like a tribal mm. perspective, like men the would hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder why is it that, like, you know, is it the fact that I suppose women did have to bear children that it just made more sense for men to go out and uh, be the hunters, uh, which maybe plays into why men developed more muscles in certain ways or mm. more like uh, stronger physiques in certain, like, aspects yeah am I right in saying that well men are bigger anyway aren't yeah they? yeah but like, yeah. I wonder does that play into it yeah you know like from a conditioning point of view over a long period of time yeah you fit into the most appropriate role yeah. at that time you adapt to what your needs or yeah. what your uh, is demanded of you physically yeah. and mentally whereas now when we think about um are not all but a lot of the roles that we do aren't as physically taxing so those gender roles can merge a little bit um there's not always the same necessity for either parent to stay at home but for it it to be the, the mother if if a parent is staying at home um and yet it's still more difficult for a woman to to make her way in the workplace yeah you know well it's a uh, i suppose the corporate world the framework of the corporate world it has been kind of fabricated by men you know so what I've noticed in my own personal experience is that women who uh, tend to uh, ascend that ladder uh, 
tend to embody a lot of masculine traits, mm. you know, because it's nearly like the way that maybe they think they have to adopt or maybe they're just forced to adopt uh, as per the environment that they're working in in order to, su- to succeed. Mm. Um, but does that say more about the men or the women? You know, I think it says more about the men, you know, like in the, the, the I suppose, culture that we have con- uh, conditioned and fabricated, whether we know it or not. Uh, and then just to speak to the perceptions around men's places in society mm. from men, you know, over a long period of time, we talked about it there, how historically, even in Ireland, we thought that we, you know, have this responsibility to be the uh, providers to um, take care of our children, to make, get them, make the money. And I wonder, is that weight still on men's shoulders from cultural residual? And is that weight still on women's shoulders to be, you know, stay at home moms? Because it is still quite fresh. Mm. You know, like I look at my mom. My mom was a stay at home mom growing up from when she had my first. As was mine, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, like that was just the reality I grew up in. So yeah. in many ways, I thought that was the norm. Mm. And it was nearly my own kind of education and awareness around it that I started to question and be like, no, this is actually not yeah. what I like or what I want. That's it. And well, we don't have the luxury. As much anymore yeah, to have yeah. one income, do we? No, no, we certainly don't. But your mom was the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually she just went back to work. Uh, so w- when she had my brother, who's a year older than I am, she stopped working and kind of had to. Um, she worked in the civil service and it was only eight years ago or something. She went back to work um, again for the civil service because her friend said, oh, there's a little spot. And what? Actually, now now I think about it. I mean, what was fascinating to me was my mum's imposter syndrome, who was saying, well, I never, I haven't worked in years. And she she worked for 10, 15 years at the time before she had my brother. Um, but she was saying, God, I haven't worked in so long. And they're asking me for a CV and I don't have this, that or the other. I don't have a degree, etc. You know, what have I got? So it was only when we were going through that CV and trying to build one that, that, I think she saw in herself just how many qualities and skills, all the transferable stuff. Yeah. So I was saying, God, well, you certainly know how to delegate, you know, who does the laundry <laughs> and everything. So I wouldn't worry about that when it comes to it, you know. Um, but, you know, whether it's going for a CEO job or whether it's, you know, a part time something after 30 years out of work, those feelings, I suppose, they don't they still persist, don't they? you know, those imposter syndrome ones. Absolutely. And uh, even though like the likes of your mom and even yourself uh, coming on today have put so much work and have professional experience and like a resume with all these different jobs, I think we have this habit of like comparing ourselves to who we are right now and what's going on right now mm. or maybe even um, just overlooking like the fact that like you might be credible to talk about some things in particular, like you, for example, you know, you've have amazing accomplishments uh, in the field of psychology in terms of just like completing that. Mm. Um, but the doubt still is there. Um, and uh, I just find that, yeah, I find it particularly interesting because I think it is a, a very human thing. Um, but I suppose with the topic there with uh, women, I just wonder like, do you think that women growing up in society, maybe women your age, like that in their minds or at the forefront of their minds, like it was that 
the destiny was to become a housewife um, or like that was the identity thing prominent or no? No, for, for my generation, no. And I think what's great now, it, I mean, it's really interesting if a woman of, of my age chooses to become a stay-at-home mum, that's nearly frowned upon now. I think yeah. it's great that people have the choice, you know, whether you become a stay-at-home dad or a mum, that's fine. You know, if, if you are able to do that and you have the choice, fantastic, do as you wish. And it is your choice. And it's your choice, yeah. Um, whereas my generation, it all the women, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm lucky to be surrounded by strong go-getters of, of women and friends, <coughs> excuse me, but they have always talked about careers, you know, and they've put a lot of work into their careers and what they're doing. Um, and they're real achievers, you know, so they're, for them, it's not, not, not even a thought about being a, a stay-at-home mum, which is great mm. for them because these women are all being able to in the cheesiest possible way, follow their dreams or, you know, they, they've been walk having... The path they want to walk. Yeah. Do what they want to do. Exactly. They've had messages yeah. from when they were young. I mean, we've had to kind of wade through all of the messages on the magazines, which is be pretty and mm. lose weight and da, 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 all of this kind of stuff rather than go be a lawyer, go be a high-powered executive. So we've had to, despite not receiving those messages from some parts of society, yeah. we've had to do that ourselves I guess Do you think there's been like a resistance and almost a rebellionness against them messages and that might play into the ambition to actually uh, walk your own path and do what you want to do uh, as well as just a natural ambition Maybe yeah but it's definitely easier it's definitely easier like school nowadays not a, not every school but lots of schools nowadays will gear you towards further education or jobs so yeah. um, and again there is the that hard about not being able, like a necessity to work yeah. you know and, and as we all get older people are getting married later they're having children later to afford a home or to rent you have to work so there is that necessity so you know even people who may want to become um, a homemaker they might not even have that luxury yeah, yeah. it's kind of funny in school that like um, lads didn't do home economics yeah like that was so recent like even as I was growing up yeah, you know, my brother did it. In, did he? Well, no, he didn't do home ec, but in transition year, they did a module and they taught them how to make a steak sandwich. And that oh was it. Oh my God, <laughs> like, most masculine meal yeah. you can potentially make, steak and chips, yeah. steak sandwich. I actually remember, I completely forgot about this, but I remember in school thinking of, like hearing about home economics and actually was like, geez, I wouldn't mind doing that. Like that sounds interesting. Oh, it was great. You but, get to bake every Wednesday afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> but the idea at that time of going, to do that was yeah. just like such a massive no. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that would be like identity, like suicide, you know? But crazy, isn't it? <laughs> that there was such a barrier, being a man, it being such a barrier to gaining normal life skills. Yeah. Like cooking. Yeah. Completely. Mm. Even cleaning up, you know, or like looking like doing the iron and iron and at home, like for me. So it's me. really done us women a big disservice. Not having the men do home Yeah, ec. yeah, but it also does men a disservice. Absolutely. You know, because yeah. I know for me that when I actually moved, like my mom, um, even if you tried to help around the house, she just, like, that was her, you know, uh, role. Mm. And um, she took a lot of pride in it. And when I actually moved out and lived by myself, I kind of felt like, Jesus, like I'm, this is sink or swim. Like I don't really know how to do anything. Yeah. Like I don't know how to do a lot of the, the 
tasks that are just day-to-day tasks that I need and actually depend on being able to do. Yeah. Uh, so I had to cultivate them myself. And I think that's quite common um, in uh, in Irish society and maybe just society in general. But I wonder what your thoughts are on all-boys schools. Because I went to an all-boys secondary school. Yeah. And I felt like all the, like so much male energy was quite, um, had a quite a lot of negativity associated with, with it because it was just so much hev- so much ego. Mm. And I often thought that if if women, if I had been in secondary school with women, that the feminine, the presence of the feminine energy would have checked the male's ego. Yeah. Do you think that is, like, do you think that all same-sex girls are a bit outdated? Maybe, I mean, I went to a girls' school, but I think your, your thoughts there are backed up by research, aren't they? And it's that when um, boys are in, when girls are in a mixed school, they do poorer, they do worse, their their results are worse because they're concerned with uh, their perception of being a nerd or a swat or, or whatever. When boys are in a mixed school, they do better because they're there to impress and it's that ego thing. So there yeah. might be, sure, the ego in a boys' school, in an all-boys school, but there's that ego which is, I suppose, playing out in a really good productive sense when you're in a girl's school because you want to be the alpha male and do the best and get the highest grades so and that's mm. what's seen as valuable from a woman's point of view I suppose yeah because when you know in an all-lads school like the last thing you're concerned about is doing well amongst your peers mm. it's you want to be down the back you know you want to be down the back yeah you know causing trouble exactly you know yeah. giving back cheek having a crack um having a laugh or it's about like being involved in sports and, and that's where you maybe get your uh, sense of pride from or, or fighting, you know, mm. like there's a lot of fighting in that school. There's a lot of, um, yeah, big egos. And I wonder is like that environment where it's only lads, do, is that just more conducive to more ego? Probably. Know? And I, I can't speak for um, mixed schools. I, I wasn't in one, but I could imagine that, you know, Girls being around boys, boys being around girls, um, it destigmatizes it. You know, when you're in an all-girls school, when you're, you know, 13 and you're um, not scared of boys, but like you never talk to a boy. Yeah, you're intimidated. It, exactly. You yeah. have the exposure. Yeah, exactly. You don't, And you just see them as boys rather than as people. And, and, you know, conversely, there's boys who, you know, have never been exposed to girls. So they're thinking them of, thinking of them as these you know mystical creatures rather than them as humans yeah and then when it does when you get to a certain age it, it becomes all about you know attainments and you know, getting with the girls and stuff um whereas it's a brilliant thing to be able to forge friendships with people of the opposite sex yeah you know? yeah and that it's not all about getting with them and that goes both ways doesn't it um, but there's a pressure there, I think, amongst lads at that age because, you know, the attainment of uh, women, I suppose, is almost like having stripes on your, uh, yeah, your, yeah. your, you know, belt or whatever. Uh, and it's an odd kind of pressure because if you're befriending a woman and you're not pursuing that from a romantic perspective, like, you'd nearly be slagged about that, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, or you might be considered to be gay. Yeah. There's this thing... <laughs> You know, when 
something bad happens now, you know, in, in the news, like a woman is murdered or raped or whatever else, you always see men come out and it says they they would say, as a father of girls or as a husband to a to my wife, I feel terrible. And you have to think, well, wh- why why do you have to be a father to care about this other woman? Or why do you have to be married to a woman to actually value women as a whole? Why does it, why is it only when you can ha- have a direct connection with a woman that you can empathise with women? Because they make up half the planet. Yeah. They're a human. Why do you- Completely. I wonder, is it, um, just to speculate, if you're in that position, you have developed the emotional connection uh, and that's where the empathy derives from, as opposed to it being a uh, an intellectual or mm. uh, empathy that just comes from your own consideration. And I think, um, or is it that you know why why does a woman does a woman matter more if she's attached to a man, or if she can be kind of positioned as a relation to a man? Mm, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, Maybe I'm probably getting ahead of myself there now, but... Yeah, no, I I suppose what I'm thinking is um, like cultural conditioning and the fact that we're still dealing with a lot of this residual um, that, and, and then also bring into it the lack of critical thinking skills in society mm. um, amongst maybe men uh, and how they probably fall into this group identity uh, and just also dealing with the conditioning and the, the negative kind of conditioning and dynamics amongst young male groups at a certain age where it's all about attainment and you know not really looking at women as actually you know people um in many ways uh and i suppose just to like elaborate on that it's maybe like looking at women as like sex objects that like they need to you know try to impress in order to to sleep with or you know to get with i I think i'm gonna probably speculate in there Mm. um I am speculating, but I think it's, con- uh, uh, what's the word, I'm compelling. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in bringing that into modern society, a lot of these lads still have failed to actually develop relationships with women. They might not actually have relationships with women uh, other than uh, their partner, if they have a partner. So a lot of their thinking and assumptions here are not even thought that they've maybe arrived at themselves. It's just this group identity of the friends that they have where they're nearly like holding each other back from giving their own honest opinions mm. because this is the way the group thinks. Uh, and um, I don't know, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I actually think it's a really tough place to be a young boy or a growing boy because of all of those, um, the pressures. I mean, it makes me think, but I, I know this is a big rabbit hole now, but the kind of incel culture I guess which in is cell. yeah which is oh god is it an, oh an involuntary celibate I think in cell right um and I I don't know enough kind of about it what does uh, that mean I don't know thankfully to to speak too much yeah. about it but it's um an idea that um so they're involuntarily celibate which means that they'd like to be having sex but they're not gotcha um so what they would see is women as objects. Um, and again, excuse the crude uh, explanation, I'm probably not doing this much justice, but it's kind of seeing women as objects that they are there 
for sex, for a particular role in terms of, you know, homemaking, providing a family. Reproducing. Reproducing. Um, and that as a man, you have a right to have sex with a woman. And uh, not every woman is on board with that. <laughs> so, you know, that's leading to that in, involuntary um, celibacy. And what that then produces is a lot of rage and a lot, lot of anger within this subset of, of men, of men um, who are feeling aggrieved that these, you know, pesky women aren't giving them what, what they want. And pesky women. Pesky yeah. women, yeah. These, these uh, argumentative women aren't, aren't doing what, what they what, want, yeah. you know. Um, and again, the, the sort of when you go down this these rabbit holes online and on all these threads and stuff, these online communities, there's lots of rage and that kind of breeds more rage and um, people feeling quite aggrieved. Um, and then what has happened is, like, it's pretty terrible, but when you hear of school shootings, some of those have come from, from incel communities um, because they're feeling hard done by perhaps by a particular woman or by the boyfriend of yeah. the woman, you know. Or their lack of ability to connect with women because exactly. of their own conditioning. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and seeing women as these objects mm. uh, kind of creates this mental barrier that when you actually interact with the woman, you're on edge or you're not able to express yourself or connect in a genuine mm. way. And there's that sense of entitlement as well. Yeah. And of course, if you feel entitled to any, any anybody or anything, well, then that turns people off. Yeah, I think there's also a pressure to impress, mm. you know, you nearly feel like you have to give your best self um, as a man. You know, if you, especially if you you like a woman, I feel like that creates a barrier in yourself or can paralyze you because when you're interacting with the person or the woman, um, you're like trying to impress, you're trying to get their attention. Mm. You want them to like you. And you're like, why isn't it working? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, you know, there's a... But it's not your fault. It's, yeah someone else's fault that it's not working and then that of course breeds anger yeah and that's where the rage comes from yeah yeah I, I suppose at that age as well it, it, there's a lot of importance put on it isn't there mm. to um you know what what is it in ireland like to meet someone you know i remember being like 13 and feeling the pressure just to kiss someone oh yeah yeah <laughs> like to like break my frigid oh yeah you should have frigid oh yeah God. yeah to break like to break that the yeah. pressure i felt just to you know, not be a fridge. Yeah. Because I, like, I didn't want to be like an outlier and an outcast. Yeah. And how like people might slag me. Like that, I, I remember that. And you've got this badge of honour then. You have you know, to, yeah, You're exactly. like, it was terrible, but I did it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it is terrible, but the pride of doing it. Yeah. And <clears throat> belonging. You're in the club. Yeah. You're in the club, you're belonging, exactly. Um, but I suppose there's a lot of, I don't know, something I've been thinking about myself, um, it's just what it means to be a man mm. these days. And I think there's um, a lot of growth, I think, hopefully happening, but a lot of room for growth um, in terms of what it means to be a man. Because growing up, um, it was about having these characteristics that convey you as being this strong, mm. you know, uh, dominant uh, male. Uh, and that's the kind of characteristics that embodied what being a male was yeah but I think actually you know what a strong male is is someone who is connected to their emotions yeah and their feminine energy mm. and is able to express themselves openly and be vulnerable and not have this pressure of being strong um 
And I, I would think maybe that the ideal is that actually both women and men uh, embody a, a nice balance of the masculine and feminine energy. Yeah. Because there's probably been too much pressure put on women to be overly feminine and too much pressure on men to be um, overly masculine. So I wonder what your thoughts are, if you have any insights around where we are currently uh, in society uh, and how men identify with being men. Mm. I mean, I, I completely agree with that, that sentiment, you know. Um, and, you know, going back slightly just to that secondary school, you know, the mixed school part, I think like that exposure as well to emotions and to conversation and, and you know, depth. I think that's so important, you know, to, to kind of build those skills and that um, ability or permission to be able to talk about your emotions and see that it's okay. And currently, you know, again, I completely agree. I think it's a real sign of strength and manliness to be able to talk about your emotions um, and to be in touch with them or, to, you know, particularly around things like conflict or, in you know, in relationships, um, all of that kind of stuff, to be able to know what's coming up and, and why. And then it's, you become so much stronger when you know yourself and you're able to deal with that better then. Yeah. Um, and then everything goes a lot smoother, doesn't it? When you know yourself. So, you know, I think that's, that's massively important. Um, and I, I, I think it's brilliant when people do do that work themselves or when they, they're feeling strong and brave, brave enough to be able to have those conversations or be emotional, you know, whether that's, you know, expressing their emotions in a healthy way, be that sadness or anger. Um, it's really important to be able to express those and validate all of those. Um, and something, you know, I think about a lot is, um, and I know we've touched on it a little bit, is that, you know, me being a clinical psychologist, I think think about this, I think, a good bit. Yeah. But it's just that who comes to therapy? Um, you know, who seeks help. And there's this massive um, societal stigma about therapy, isn't there? There is. Yeah. And for women, it's a lot easier um, to come because we are talkers. We're more emotional in, in, in kind of being in, in tune with our emotions, I suppose, or being more open about them or they're being permission to be open about yeah. them. Is that because historically, you know, men going out to hunt, that's the kind of mode of thinking they were in, as opposed to women who maybe stayed back to tend to the mm. kids uh, would engage in social interaction mm. uh, and maybe had a lot more exposure and comfort in expressing themselves because they had the time to do so mm. in them environments. Mm. I wonder, does that play into... Um, that point you just made about women have more kind of yeah. comfort in expressing themselves or is it also an ego thing, a lack of ego thing with women? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's definitely, I think the brave face thing, you know, and maybe that does go back years and years that men were the hunters. They had to have the brave face. There was no time because it's a weakness, isn't it? Yeah. And if you, as a survival thing, you don't show any weakness. And if you're crying, perhaps that could be perceived as a weakness. Uh, coupled with that, there could be that women traditionally would cook together or make tea together or sit or, or, you know, mind children together. And then there was that space to be able to talk. I mean, something I always think is funny is that like um, if my 
uh, boyfriend Victor comes home from meeting friends. Shout out to Victor. Shout out to Vic. I'll I'll be like, oh, you know, <laughs> how was it? What do you guys talk about? And he's like, oh, we didn't talk. Or I'll go, you know, how is so-and-so? And he's like, I don't know. We didn't talk about that. And I'll be like, but you were just together for four hours. How did you not? Yeah. Whereas, you know, he'll be like, how did you meet that person for 10 minutes on the street? And you'll know how their mom is and how's work going and how's their kids and how's this and that. So there's definitely, maybe it's not about time, um, you know, time spent with people, but mm. more about the styles. The styles, the tone. Yeah. And I don't know necessarily where those styles come from. Again, it could be that strength part that's important yeah. to men and the vulnerability part that makes women connect over tea and cooking, you know, way back when. Um, it's interesting, like, because, like, you know, Obviously, myself and Vic were in the same friend group, and I find that we have an openness to discuss uh, nearly any topic. Mm. But now that I think of it, it is just discussing a topic mm. openly and like deliberating on it. Yeah. But a moment to come to talking about personal stuff, I've always sensed this kind of awkwardness in the air mm. and a reluctance to speak about personal stuff, or when that kind of attention is on you. And yeah, look, in school, there was no education, you know, like you pointed out there, there was no education around um, emotions. Mm. And like the lack of ed education is the lack of understanding and being able to actually label our emotions. And then the pressure to be a man uh, and what it meant to be a man. And also growing up in environments where our parents weren't equipped with the uh, tools to understand themselves emotionally and are coming off the back of, you know, just independence in Ireland and everything we spoke about there in regards to uh, being colonized. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of feel like myself, I've done so much work on myself and maybe through that, I, it has enabled me mm. a level of comfort in you know, expressing the emotional side of myself. Maybe music and playing music has also helped with that. But uh, yeah, there is a big issue with it mm. amongst men. And um, I wonder, you know, in terms of seeing a psychologist, uh, I think it's so important. And personally, I think it will go the same direction as, you know, yoga. Mm. I remember wanting to do yoga when I was 18 and I didn't do it. You got laughed out. I didn't do it. No, I actually didn't do it. Like yeah. I didn't even tell anyone. But I didn't actually do it because of the fear of how I would be perceived. Mm. Like that's what held me back. And then about 21, I started to do it, but I didn't tell anyone. Yeah. And I'd done it for a couple yeah. of years and I actually didn't say it to anyone. And I moved in with Vic and Mother and they kind of were doing it a little bit as well. But uh, now if you look at yoga, it's a widely accepted thing amongst men. Yeah. And even encouraged. Uh, and that's happened in a pretty short span of time. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe meditation is on that similar route. Yeah. But I think psychology and, and seeing a psychologist, I hope will yeah, be seen as the same thing because um, we all have a conditioning and we've all got behavioral patterns that are an expression of our conditioning mm. that probably need to be addressed and resolved or uh, spoke about. Um, is there a massive, I suppose, difference in the amount of women that have psychologists or see psychologists compared to men? I think so. I mean, I don't have, yeah, I don't have my stats to hand, <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely. I mean, women are definitely more, um, they're better at help seeking 
And you can see that in the rates of anxiety and depression that are diagnosed. So there's loads more women and women that are diagnosed with um, X, Y and Z than men. And part of that might be due to kind of a higher incidence. Part of that is that we catch them because women come and they, they seek help. They do. Yeah. So there's all these these poor men going under the radar who might really need help. But because of that stigma that goes around, they don't necessarily. So why? what do you think a man's thinking when he generally, what do you think men think when they think about the word psychologist or how it's maybe even seen in, psycho- in, in, in a society from a general perspective? Mm, I mean, I wonder, do men think that you've got to be desperate to go to one, like it's a last chance chance saloon um, or a kind of a last choice or um, it's for somebody who is weak um, or crazy or that there's a problem. But I mean, it's fascinating. If you had a a sore ankle, you'd go straight to the doctor or a sore whatever, you'd go to a physio. But when you're not feeling so good in your mind, then we, we kind of hunker down or we shrivel in. We don't go to somebody for that. Um, I mean, it's brilliant that more people are going to therapy now um, and seeking help, which is just fantastic. But I think there's still a long way to go. I mean, there's been campaigns for Irish farmers to go to therapy and because they are, I think, the last uh, group to go. Like, there's a big no-no. You know, and me being in a little psychology bubble, you know, I can often get get caught thinking, well, you know, everyone comes to, to therapy. I see men, I see women, it's all great. Um, but then you step outside that bubble and you're like, whoa, actually, there's a big taboo or there's a, there's a lot of stigma in certain areas and certain social groups. So there's definitely a lot of work that still needs to to, yeah. to come from that. But I think like the demographic you're speaking about are farmers. And I even think about my granddad, never mind seeing a psychologist, actually going to the hospital. Mm. Like they could have a big gash in their yeah. that could be infected and... Yeah. Like the idea of going to the hospital that was a weakness. Mm. It's like, no, no, I'll be grand. I'll be fine. Yeah. Like that was a very... With his leg hanging off. Yeah. yeah. And that kind of speaks to this uh, ego uh, in men and mm. this uh, perceived identity of what it means to be a man and, and being strong and having it together and holding it together uh, and to go and seek help. Mm. Because fundamentally, that's what I suppose it is, isn't it? It's seeking help from outside of yourself. Yeah. And admitting that to yourself. Yeah. And that is a weakness. Yeah. So there is a correlation there between hospitals and psychologists. I mean, think about it. Men, I know, and I don't want to generalize, but men perhaps find it more difficult to ask for directions than women. You know, they'd be sitting there going around in circles for ages. And isn't it a bigger sign of strength to just say, right, I actually need to ask and I'll get there quicker and everybody wins. Apart from the ego, the ego doesn't win. But it's the same for psychology. You know, what I would think is that it's such a strength to say, you know what, I'm not doing so well right now. Or I could do with a bit of support and to be to to seek that. I think that's very brave. Completely brave um, and empowering. Mm, Um, Like I've I've seen uh, seen been seen a psychologist for a year now mm. and. You know, at the start, it was, um, I found myself in a probably rough enough headspace. And my thinking was like, well, you know, a psychologist has spent all this energy and time into understanding the mind. And this is going to be able to be someone that can offer me professional insight Mm. and help me navigate where I'm at. But then that actually turned into uh, a fascination uh, with uh, having these 
uh, interactions where I get to talk about me. Like we all love to talk about ourselves <laughs> and I get to learn about the patterns in my upbringing and conditioning yeah. that um, have influenced me and why I behave and think in certain ways. And to me, I just think that's uh, super intriguing, <clears throat> but also very important because mm. um, any maybe negative impulsive behavior that I have or anybody has, there's most le- likely a reason for it. Mm. And when you can become aware and identify that reason, uh, it can be liberating. Absolutely. You know? yeah. And actually help you change that behavior that you might consider as just who you are mm. and identify with. Yeah. Uh, and I think we all have them negative behaviors that maybe we're not so proud of or negative ways of thinking about certain things or insecurities um, that we just uh, recognize populating in our minds, but we don't really consider the underlying reasoning for them mm. uh, because we lack the awareness and understanding. So that's where I think it's uh, very healthy and important for uh each of us to engage with, with a psychologist to understand ourselves better. And I think through understanding understanding ourselves better, we actually get more strength in who we are as individuals and not trying to figure out who mm. we are because so many people don't know who they are. Yeah. You know, the yeah. identity is so frail and especially mm. when your identity, I think, is expressed predominantly from the ego because mm-hmm. it's uh, susceptible to all these outside influences yeah. someone makes a negative comment and that can completely derail you yeah but yeah. when you have done a lot of work or at least for me i'm going to speak to myself here you know i've spent over a month in silence meditating mm. um, and that was like you know immensely deep work i've seen psychologists i've done journaling and inward work but i feel like i have a very robust sense of who i am mm. you know at a, a level that is beyond my ego not to say that my ego doesn't you know, flare up. It's a yeah, dance. Yeah. But, um, and when we talk about ego as well, that's, you know, th- there's the idea that an ego is this big inflated, you know, thing that's swagging or swaggering yeah, around, yeah. you know, but actually that ego is just that part of ourselves that is really trying to protect us and look out for ourselves. Yeah. So what can come across as perhaps inflated or, um, you know, even as, as big as pompous sometimes, um, what that is, is really just this mechanism that we have, that kind of part inside our brains that acts before we think about it. What And what it does is acts in what it thinks is in accordance with our best interests. But of yeah. course, that can get us in trouble sometimes. So it's an important mm. part of the um, you know, of being a human being is oh, ego. Yeah, yeah. And I often think, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, that the more inflated... I experience someone's ego being, um, I will think that, God, they must have a lot of hurt underneath that. Mm. Like what's happened to them in their conditioning that has caused them to have such a strong response and the need to protect themselves. Mm. And that shows, I think, who you are and the work that you've done. And that's a hugely compassionate approach to, because when we see... um an ego that's flaring up, which often, which might come to us as conflict or anger or, you know, whatever else, um, that can hurt us. So we respond then. Our, ego, our egos respond, you know, to that ego. Yeah. It butts heads, doesn't it? So yeah. um, what you can do then is is respond to protect your own best interest and that can lead to conflict. And it's less common for somebody to have that 
incredible awareness to actually take a step back and go, hold on a second, maybe this is that person, um, an insecurity or an, an ego coming up because there's something else going on under there. What And you're asking, where's the hurt? Rather than going, you know, what an arsehole. <laughs> so. And look, it's not always the case. Like, you know, oftentimes I will be like, what an asshole. Mm. I know my ego will flare up and yeah. I'll feel the need to defend myself. Um you know, especially for me, like growing up in a house with so many brothers, like mm. that was very conditioning to me, like you're, you know, always fighting. <laughs> so that does happen. But I think it's my reaction to my reaction, you know, and I'm like going over it and reflecting on it. Like there's a, there's oftentimes a reasoning, isn't mm. there? There's something that connects uh, that in the background. Yeah. Um, But what you said there is, I think, an important point. And it's trying to cultivate the more compassionate approach. Mm. And like, you know, when you do step away from having that interaction with someone who is acting very strongly from their ego is to maybe think about it a little bit deeper and, you know, be curious or Mm. empathetic about why they might be behaving that way. Like, how how do we cultivate that? Awareness, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think compassion is something that's hugely lacking. Yeah. Um, not just in our approaches to other people, but our approaches to ourselves. Because we're so hard on ourselves, aren't we? We are. I mean, we're our own worst enemies because, you know, often what, what, what people can think is, God, well, if you think you're going to say something mean to me, wait till yeah. you hear what I'm about to tell myself. You yes. know, we can be so hard on ourselves. Um, whether it's coming on a podcast or you know, putting yourself somewhere new or, or submitting a piece of work. You know, we're so mean to ourselves. Um, and again, that that's probably a protection piece, you know, um, a defense mechanism that, you know, well, I can't, one, it'll, it'll keep me where I belong. So, you know, that keeps me safe rather than popping my head out above the parapet. Um, but also if I'm about to, to come up against critis- criticism, I've already done it to myself, so you can't hurt me. Mm. But... I mean, and that's protective in some ways, but hugely hurtful because we're just tearing ourselves down um, and not recognizing all of our strengths. And people really struggle with that. Um, And when we take a more compassionate approach, um, there's just a a huge difference, I think. You know, and a lovely one I like to think about is when somebody is struggling with being compassionate to themselves, um, it can be really hard to think of it any nice thoughts about themselves or about that thing that they're doing. Um, And if you can ask somebody or try and reframe it and go, well, you know, if your friend was submitting that piece of work, what would you say to them? Or, you know, whatever it's about. And they would often say, oh, I'd say it's amazing. Or I would say, God, isn't it brilliant that you're putting yourself out there or, or going for it? And then you think, okay, well, can you do that about yourself? Well, you know, imagine you're your own best friend. What would you say to yourself? And they're like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> I can't yeah. do that. It's this huge block, isn't it? It is completely. And I think we all relate to that mm. um, as people. Is there any strategies, other strategies that you might suggest for someone who does feel very entrapped with their negative perceptions towards themselves and how critical and harsh they are towards themselves? Like how, how does someone begin to break that mm. chain of thinking? Yeah, I mean, the first is just uh, noticing I think that's huge and that's really difficult. Um, How is that cultivated? Like awareness, noticing? Yeah. I mean, we can get so trapped in this negative cycle um, 
of, you know, this little voice on our shoulder who's who critiques us, criticizes us, says you shouldn't do that. That was really bad. You look terrible today. Um, I have a name for my, uh, uh, that guy, I call him the, the inner bitch, you know. <laughs> His name's Lenny. Lenny sounds like a right. Yeah, yeah. Lenny's um, the guy that, uh, you know, don't go and do the podcast. What would you say? Yeah. You know, who do you think you are? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. That, that voice is present, you know, and it's, it's a dance. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, we, as humans, we've got lots and lots of thoughts, don't we? So we can have those neutral thoughts, which are, today is Wednesday. Um... Or we can have... So neutral thought is almost like a non-emotive exactly. thing, thought. Yeah, it's like an objective factual, thought that perhaps. doesn't influence or... Yeah. I'm out of milk. Yeah. You know, um, or we can have positive thoughts, which are, I look great today, or I'm really good at art, or we can have those negative thoughts, which are, I look terrible today, or I'm terrible at art. And those, you know, the those negative or positive thoughts, they can change very rapidly. So I could have had a bad sleep last night. So my thoughts are tend to be negative today. Yeah. Um, negative interaction with someone. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they're so influenced by all the stuff around us and all, all the environmental stuff. Or we can have more of a longstanding thought pattern. Um, so you might tend towards having more positive thoughts or more negative thoughts. Um, I mean, and, and that could be from the way you're brought up, you know, your your mum or your dad, for example, might always be giving out about stuff and you, you know, tend to give out or your, your parents might always go, um, sure, you know, they might be, be a more glass half full kind of person. But that's not to say that that's forever or that's your, your always, your permanent thinking style. It's really interesting, I think, that, that those can be changed. And it's just a testament that, you know, it's the, the, the way that we think about something then um, really influences how we feel and then how we feel about ourselves. So when it comes back to, you know, what do we do first or, how, you know, how do we change that? First, it's about noticing. So it's about identifying, my God, there's a Lenny, you know, who's always saying those kind of things to me. And, you know, it often comes up around my podcast or my artwork and you can firstly notice them so because th those thoughts they're often automatic you know they're like the wallpaper they yeah. come up they're just there and we don't even notice them um and it's really hard to notice something that's just been there for so long that it's just part of the furniture so when you can notice and it's really hard actually t to catch them um i remember you know it's you can preach all of this stuff but practicing it is difficult yeah and I remember catching a negative thought one time going oh my god I've done it <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> I'm not amazing but um but do, you think, do you think we're more hardwired to think negative negatively because it was just more beneficial to our survival possibly but then if we only think negatively we don't do anything do we you know if we're if we're going to be trapped in and I know some people are perhaps more creative thinkers or whatever but if we only think negatively and only stay in our lane with them what do we achieve and we have to achieve to move forward definitely and i think in current society that's very relevant but i suppose i'm just thinking right from a larger biological mm. condition and perspective um it was more beneficial to be cautious to be on the back foot mm. to be concerned for the sake of surviving because maybe expressing too much curiosity and optimism about the surroundings and environment and people could get you killed very easily. Yeah. Um, and we're carrying that conditioning now into modern society where we don't really have to worry about them kind of threats. Um, 
because personally I've often found that it takes a lot of more work for me to cultivate a positive mind and positive thinking yeah. than it does a negative one. A negative one just seems to take over automatically. Mm. And if I'm not exercising, I'm not eating well, I'm not like journaling, mm -hmm. meditating, or just doing the habits that I find are conducive to a positive um, state of mind, that I will just, you know, default back into this negative thinking. Now, in saying that, that could be to do with my own um, conditioning mm. and uh, me having to override that. But, um, yeah, any thoughts there with that? Or Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we're all very different, you yeah. know. But absolutely, there's that those kind of negative thoughts there. They creep in very easily and they often creep in a lot easier than the positive thoughts don't they yeah. and the positive thoughts take a bit more work to maintain um it seems like the negative or the more unhelpful thoughts they don't need any maintenance they don't need any work they just it's like they you know they're well practiced and they'll pop in um but it takes a lot of work to change those from the negative to the positive rather than well, I'm not sure if, if people try and change from the positive to the negative, but, mm. you know, there's a lot more practice that comes into cultivating the positive thoughts. Um, but what's amazing is having those practices, you know, knowing yourself yeah. so, so much um, what practices you need to do to be able to, to keep up those positive thoughts and kind of um, keep the negative ones at bay. Do you think a good first step, I'm just thinking here, or a good challenge for people who are wondering how to get awareness over these thoughts that they might have lacked awareness over mm. or someone that's so deep in the negative uh, criticism towards themselves is it potentially a good um, challenge to try name um, their, you know, as mm. I would call it, inner bitch yeah. or like put some kind of identity because I found it beneficial for me in the past where I might be acting in a certain way for a day or two I might just decide to be so lazy and like sleep on the couch and like eat shy and then mm. realize that actually no that was Lenny running the show there and that's not what I want yeah um do you think that could be a good yeah first step for someone yeah yeah I mean if that's helpful absolutely yeah I mean um other things that might be useful are things like thought diaries where you have um you know you keep track of your your mood whether that's just having a you know a seven day a week chart with morning afternoon night and you write in a smiley face or a five out of 10 for your mood that day and yeah. be able to identify it. And you're like, well, what was going on there? And you're like, oh, I had this thing coming up and I was giving out to myself about it. So that, and then I felt really sad and or disappointed yeah. or whatever. And that was why I was a two out of 10. And then, and that's a big old process. I know that sounds easy, I suppose, when you just, you know, name it like that, but it's really tough to be able to identify what was going on around that bad mood were yeah. that activity and then following that um that's when there's there's still a, a lot of work to do but to change those to challenge those thoughts and that's when you bring in those questions those those kind of compassionate questions like is there another way of looking at that you know or and I mean I suppose the step before that as well is is identifying kind of patterns that might come up in those thoughts for example I'm always catastrophizing. So I'm always thinking that the worst thing is going to happen. Or um, I give myself lots of shoulds and musts, like I should do better or I'm, I must try harder or I should be as good as that person. Or something like a mental filter where you're always thinking about 
the bad stuff. So you might have gone out to dinner and had a really lovely meal, but your soup was cold. So you go, oh, it was terrible. You know, the whole meal was terrible, you know. Mm, shaped your whole perception of the experience. Exactly, yeah. So if you can identify, um, oh, that's really interesting, actually. Something that comes up for me a lot is this mental filter or this other thinking style. Um, maybe I can kind of catch those a bit quicker. When I, when I catch myself going, oh, that's going to be terrible. You go, oh, wait a second. Okay, well, maybe that's a thought that keeps coming up and up again. Maybe what can I do about that? Yeah. So you might think to yourself, well, how can I frame that a little bit differently? You know, let's let's talk through this. So I went out for dinner there and the soup was cold. Yeah, that wasn't great and that's fine. What was good? Actually, I had a delicious steak and whatever else. And you might start to challenge. Good company. Good know, company, yeah. Which is probably the most important aspect of the meal. There you go. You know, is, uh, the people you're socialising with. There you go, exactly. And you might think, okay, actually it wasn't all bad. Yeah. So that thought that I had, oh, the meal was ruined, it was terrible. Is that actually true? Okay, maybe not so true. Is there a different way yeah. of looking at it? Okay, yeah, maybe I can just shift a little bit away from, from that terrible, you know, perception that I had of my meal. And awareness is key there, I think. Mm. Um, because when you're aware, you can identify the actual thought that keeps resurfacing. And even just the yeah. awareness over it allows you to step back and not get caught up in it so much so that it completely ruins your evening. Yeah. Um, but you just touched on journaling. And I think journaling is so um, powerful because yeah. even just the consistent activity of spending a moment or two moments to write down some thoughts or smiley face or yeah. whatever it might be into a journal forces you to reflect. And it's through that consistency of reflection that I think you develop awareness. And then that awareness allows you to um, gain some control over mm. your thoughts mm. or awareness of your thoughts and control over your behavior. So you're not just acting out off these impulsive thoughts yeah. uh, and you create a space and you get to let you can let the thought pass and not give it power. Mm. Um, it's tricky it is yeah. it is tricky there's all it's a minefield isn't it you know when you talk about journaling it's so powerful for a lot of people it does, it's not not for everybody Yeah. but it can be really really powerful in terms of sifting through your thoughts and um, you know putting them out on paper and connecting things like your, your that um, that that action or you know event to a thought to a feeling to a subsequent action and you know it's it's brilliant um and what can be attached to that as well or the, the big question that come up is like well where, where do I start how do I journal you know I need to journal right I need to do it perfectly and there's no such thing is there but no. it's it's hard to start because you want to do it right but there is no right there is no none especially in expressive journaling and you'll always find from from my own experience that actually when you go to decide to write something like you've no idea what you're going to say a lot of the time you don't sit down with the intention that I'm going to write these specific words mm. and there oftentimes is a block and you, I've sat down with the intent to write and thought that I would have nothing to say and then I end up writing two pages, Yeah, you know, just get lost in conversation with myself. Um, so I think the activity of just trying to sit down and develop the habit, you'll be surprised what actually comes up. Mm. Um, so definitely recommend it. Uh, for anyone that hasn't tried it or like you said it's not for everyone but it's at least worth exploring yeah. but um, you touched on something there that I've always been quite intrigued by um, and that's oh no <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know when someone does have a meal so someone can have the most amazing evening and then the something bad happens during the meal 
And that ruins their whole evening mm. and their whole perception of the evening is tainted, even yeah. though they might have had the most amazing evening. Is there any um, insights or understanding uh, into why that happens in, in us um, and maybe the conditioning uh, components that contribute to that kind of thinking? Yeah, again, I think that kind of links back in as well to the, the short term negative thinking styles and the longer term negative thinking styles. Um, and, you know, somebody might just have had a bad day that day um, and then be more inclined, you know, you know yourself, if something bad happens, then a string of bad thing happens or you feel less less able to cope. You know, if a glass of water falls over, well, then suddenly it's the end of the world. Um, so just on a day by day basis, we can definitely be, be better equipped emotionally to deal with the little things that happen like a cold soup. Um, but then on the longer term or in the longer term, we can just fall into those patterns sometimes. And when we fall into those patterns, um, then that becomes sort of our, our automatic way of thinking. So it's yeah. because we, we cultivate habit. Yeah. It's habitual yeah. behavior. Put put very well, thanks. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I loved your, the context. So that could be just one day we're having a really bad day mm. um, because of good reason. And then we spill a glass of water and we have this strong emotional reaction to spilling that glass of water. Mm. And then the next time we spill a glass of water, there's association there. So we nearly act um, a similar way uh, in relation to the first time we've done it. You, c you could, or the next day you, you could spill your glass of water and actually you've had a fine day, so you don't have that reaction at all. Right, right. Which speaks to the transient nature of yeah. those negative thoughts. Or, like you say, there could be that habit building where um, you just find that when those little negative things happen or the big negative things happen, we critique or we criticise ourselves perhaps, or we think about it in a more negative way because that's what we're used to and that's what feels safer. Yeah. Yeah. So being more connected to ourselves emotionally mm. uh, and having a more uh, in-depth understanding of ourselves as emotional beings uh, in theory should allow us to navigate uh, these emotional events that happen in life yeah. with a bit more ease yeah. and awareness. Yeah. Um, and it's fascinating if you think about, you know, people in relationships, whether that's romantic, family relationships, friendships, um, you know, we go through the world, through our lives as connected beings, hopefully. And so it's not just as easy as saying, well, my thoughts are today are negative or positive. They're, they they kind of interplay with, with other people, don't they? So, you know, you, you hear this kind of classic example of, you know, one partner uh, not emptying the dishwasher and the other partner goes mad at them. And it's really interesting because it's often not about the dishwasher, is it? It's yeah. about all of this other stuff. And it might speak to perhaps a different issue, which is um, I don't feel like you meet my needs in this area or I don't feel like you listen to me um, more generally. But then it's come out as the dishwasher because I've asked you to unload yeah. the dishwasher in this particular way or, you know, whatever it is. But it's just um, really interesting, I suppose, how other people can, can kind of a affect us and... Um, how it's not just about knowing yourself, it's about knowing the people around you and what 
their styles are as well or or you know having having the capacity to know someone else so well that you go I don't think that was about the dishwasher was it yeah you know you blowing up at me there that wasn't that what else is going on under there and you've been able to assist somebody else to go oh yeah you're right actually now you say it I can do that little bit of work there and I know that that wasn't about the dishwasher maybe it was about my boss giving out to me earlier and now I'm in a bad mood yeah or maybe it was that you know maybe I'm feeling that this thing in our relationship isn't happening or, you know, you're not listening or I'm feeling unheard perhaps rather than you're not listening. Um, That's a communication issue in relationships mm. then. And I'm just thinking that that lack of or the communication issue that maybe exists in relationships is so closely tied to the, the lack of education around uh, emotional and understanding and mm. how to express our emotions and yeah. communicate that mm. growing up yeah. uh, in society. Yeah, and when you had said earlier there, you know, I think therapy should be for everybody, perhaps in the formative years. Um, yeah, I mean, I think people would benefit. But I also wonder, um, I think like for for people, there's a time and a place for therapy. So, um, you know, some people might be 18 and having a great time living their life and actually they don't need to go to therapy. Somebody might be having a really tough time in that transition period and it would be great. Um but I do think something like a schools program, and maybe this exists already, but a schools program in terms of identifying emotions and in in, yeah. a, in a very safe way, um, kind of not having to, to divulge anything with other people, but being able to do that kind of family work and thinking about attachment or what are my family dynamics like? What are the communication styles like? How do we deal with conflict? How do we express emotions? Is there a safe space to do that? Um, you know, is is my family conflict avoidant or do we, you know, do we kind of all blow up together? And um, how, so how do I learn about myself? You know, do I take all of that in, learn about myself and my own styles, my own kind of regulation, my own conflict management, my own relationship styles? And then I think that like that's just such an amazing platform to have to, you know, absolutely go then into a, friendship or a romantic relationship when you really need to connect with somebody and keep that. Yeah, completely. Um, I think it's so important and it's something I've thought about myself quite a bit. Uh, is that present in school systems now, do you know? I don't know. I know in, in primary schools they do um, sort of emotion regulation um, programs. So that's kind of um, learning about emotions naming them emotional literacy um, and normalizing them and then learning how to manage them as well in a healthy way. And then they do um, different programs kind of for for maybe anxious children, but they do those kind of school wide. uh, So it's not specifically for children who are anxious, but it helps children deal with worries and stresses and become more confident versions of themselves. using kind of CBT, so cognitive behavioural therapy type models, which are very child friendly. Um, but in terms of... And CBT, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, for anyone that is not listening, mm. could you just give like a brief overview of what that is? Yeah, so that... Actually, not anyone that's yeah. not listening, anyone that's listening and might not have heard <laughs> that term. Obviously, if you weren't listening, you wouldn't even hear it. You're missing so. out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> cognitive behavioural therapy or CBT is... Um, I suppose what it says on on the tin, which is there's a cognitive or thinking part to it and then behavioural, so doing part. So um, what CBT um, has is kind of a 
big old evidence base in terms of its support for people who are um, experiencing anxiety or low mood or um, other types of um, presentations, for example, phobias or um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. But so the the, the how it, how it um, is used is different, but the, the basic premise is is the same. So there's those two pronged approach, that two pronged approach, which is the cognition, the thinking, and the behaviors. So, for example, somebody with anxiety or low mood, the behavioral stuff you might be thinking about is um, stuff that might physiologically relax you. So whether that's breathing or that's yoga or the doing, so that's exercise bringing exercise in, into your um, your day or um, structure, routine, journaling, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Exercise is so powerful. Hugely, yeah. yeah. Even I notice it, like um, the analogy I've made with exercise is, it's like when I'm exercising compared to when I'm not exercising, the difference in my personality is like, if you have a pair of earphones you've paid 20 or 30 euro for, mm. you're like, oh, these are great. They do, they do the job. Yeah. yeah, I'm happy with these. It's grand. They're functioning. Why do I, they're functioning. Why would I need to spend 200 euro on a pair of earphones? Mm. But then if you go and try a pair of 200 euro earphones and you wear them for a while and go back to your 30 euro or 40 euro earphones, you're going to be like, oh my God, they're Can't shite. do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I often think that's how it is with exercise because mm. you see a lot of people out there who think they're fine without exercise and they're, you know, functioning and living and living as uh, fine. But, you know, um, when I'm not exercising for a while, I feel like there's something not right. Yeah. It can be hard to, to analyze thoroughly, but, um, and I think that might be the case for a lot of people, but you just might not feel as uh, alert or whatever, uh, or active or energized. Um, and then you exercise for a while and uh, looking at that older version of yourself is like, whoa, yeah. it's really a night, it can be a night and day difference. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a simple yeah. Um, habit. Yeah. And, I mean, it's, you, you can, I mean, exercise plays different roles for different people, but you can feel it, you know, if you click with the next type of exercise, you can really feel the difference. But that's not to say that exercise is a, it can be really helpful in terms of mood and mental health, but it's not a plaster or it's not a, no. a fix all, you know, it might just be one part of the puzzle for somebody who's maybe needs a bit more support. Definitely. And the caveat there with exercise is that people who are in these, um, delicate states of mind like uh, depression or uh, intense anxiety uh, or other darkness uh, find it impossible to even muster up the motivation to, to exercise mm. even though it has a positive impact yeah it's, so a, it's a very vicious circle isn't it, it is for sure yeah um, is there a big presence of uh, psycho psych psychology influence in the education system in terms of like do you know if the education system would uh, consider a lot of the literature in psychology when uh, maybe approaching the curriculum? Um, I'm not in Ireland. I'm not sure. I don't know if I know enough to right. say, but I know <laughs> that they have brought in, for example, those primary school programs, which talk about emotions and anxiety and worries, um, which try and um, kind of provide that that base for kids as well which I think is amazing um, what I, I actually don't know about the, the teaching right. or the, the training that teachers yeah. have but I know that they get more training now I think that they get kind of basic training in terms of um, 
sort of emotions and maybe around CBT, but again, I don't yeah. know, don't know enough to, to, to say. Are you familiar with any of Carl Dweck's work around the growth versus fixed mindset? Oh yeah. 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 I find that uh, quite interesting because it's such, so simple in terms of just the words that you might use as a teacher. And mm. um, there was one uh, experiment and I don't know how legit this is, but apparently there were studies done over different groups and uh, over a long period of time uh, where they had two groups of people and they gave them a task and after each group, so one group completed the task and the teacher said, um, oh, you're so smart. Uh, and the other group completed the task and the teacher said, oh, you're such a hard worker. Um, mm. And then they gave them another task that was more challenging. And in the first group who identified as being smart, when they were stretched uh, cognitively or just pushed out of their comfort zone, uh, a lot of the time they actually retracted mm. uh, and were afraid to commit to the task because it um, was an attack on their identity. Yeah. As opposed to the second group who uh, identified with being hard workers. Yeah. Um, yeah. They persisted because on some level they understood that it was actually the hard work that would enable them to accomplish it. Mm -hmm. um, which is so striking and seems so important that like every teacher should be aware of it and every parent should be aware of it because that nearly feeds into um, having an inflated ego. Yeah, yeah. And there's a real fear to fail there. Yeah. You know, when you're smart, things come easily. When you're smart, you're perfect. When you're smart, you know, um, you don't have to do all that work. Things should just happen and then you have an expectation that it just happens. And when it doesn't just happen, that's an affront, isn't it? Like you say, to the ego, to our sense of selves. And you're going, well, if I can't do this, then I'm not smart. And if I'm not smart, who am I? Yeah. Mm. So you um, nearly are afraid of confronting growth opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. So that kind of language towards your child or any child is mm. quite detrimental yeah. um, to the growth that you might want them to actually achieve. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to if you're just a hard worker, then the mentality is that actually I can accomplish anything Yeah. if I put my mind to it. And it's fascinating. Only um, a little while ago, I, you know, as an adult, you, you often try um, new skills less often, but I tried... Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for the did first you? time. I Over did. in Bali. Yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> yes. It didn't go well. Uh, no, not that, but I hadn't a clue what I was doing. Yeah. I, did, I didn't know the first thing. So obviously it didn't, it wasn't amazing. You know, I didn't, I wasn't amazing at it. Um, which, you know, I, I, I do hobbies now, which I've done for a long time. So I feel a lot more comfortable doing this. I didn't, I knew nothing about it. I was definitely out of my comfort zone. Um, and I wasn't a pro the first time that I did it. So there was lots of thoughts going on in there like, well, that's it. I'm never doing it again because I'm terrible. Whereas you have to think, God, OK, well, were you amazing the first time you did, you know, your other hobby or, or whatever else? No, of course not. And Even then, writing. Yeah. Writing, we, we take it for granted. Mm, we yeah, think about yeah, when we yeah. began to write in school, like we the pen or a pencil would be wobbly in our hands. Yeah. We had to try stay on the lines. We were shocking at it. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely that perfectionism bit, that kind of shame bit. The, are people looking at me? Are they judging me? The embarrassment. Um, you really have to shake all of that. So that's, you know, one of those ones where you have to catch, well, hold on a second, what's going on in here? There's the, that critic, you know, if I, had a, if I had a name for my Lenny, you know, he would have been going overtime. We need to get, we need to get your name, Holly. Exactly, I know. <laughs> 
pick. Oh. <laughs> I'm a joke. I joke. I joke. Oh God, never. Um, but is isn't that fascinating that um, all those thoughts, you know, come up? They really beat us down. But then, and this is the, the CBT part, I suppose. The, the C in the CBT, which is when you have these thoughts and you do that cognitive work. Yeah. So that's you're changing, or you're trying to change, or reframe. Um, look at it in a different way those negative things and again that first bit is understanding so what was it that was going on there that that's making me have all these negative thoughts about myself Yeah. how can I look at that differently you know and, and I can reframe that like well again you weren't good at doing playing netball the first time that you played you weren't good at writing the first time you wrote you know you, whatever whatever really any skill yeah. acquisition mm-hmm. like i think follows the same process yeah. and maybe when we, when we get older and we have developed a self self-referential mm. thinking we're like we're self-aware of ourselves mm. or we can be more critical in that sense um when you do try to cultivate a new skill like objectively i, I think everyone does go through that same process of like okay, I don't know, have a clue what I'm mm. doing here. Um, like, what's the point? You, you think you're yeah, incapable. Yeah. Uh, and you nearly have to override that with the awareness that, oh, like, I, I know I can mm. do this or at least identify how, um, which error there is in your thinking that, like, you can't yeah. after one session. Yeah, I always think it's funny. My mom will ask me for help with a printer or anything to do with a computer. And I'll be like, oh, God, mom, not again. And she'll be like, shut up, Polly. Like, I thought I taught you how to use a spoon. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fair enough. Isn't it? <laughs> and it's fair. Yeah. It is fair. Um, that's, uh, I, I love that because, yeah, we, we take that for granted. Mm. But everything, that was all taught to us. Yeah. You know, how to, how to dress, how to shower, how to um, behave in certain dynamics is all taught to us consciously and unconsciously and it's something I'm very passionate about is like trying to encourage people to keep developing skills as Mm. they get older Uh, I think when you get past a certain age we kind of think we're too old to develop a skill Mm. that uh, kids you know um, it's only at a certain age you can acquire new skills I do think that maybe we're a bit more receptive at a certain age, but I think through our whole life we can demonstrate amazing abilities to pick up new skills, whether it's instruments, mm. whether it's uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And you do see that in jiu-jitsu quite a bit. Uh, a lot of people in their 40s and yeah. 50s who started to pick it up, like Russell Brand is an example. He didn't pick it up until his 40s and right. he's a purple belt now. But um, them initial stages of going into a new environment that might be unknown, uh, attempting something that you have no exposure to. Um, I think there's a lot of power in just accepting that you're going to be shy for a while. Like, mm. you know, or just being a bit shit is just a very relevant, appropriate part yeah. of the process of actually developing the skill. Mm. Um, and that after time, uh, you will find that you sink into it. Yeah. And a lot of the time, actually, in hindsight, you find that there are some of the most enjoyable mm. periods of time Yeah, is like trying to figure it out. Yeah. That problem solving and having to like piece it together yeah we were testing ourselves yeah it's a real lesson I think in sitting with discomfort because as we get older we don't do that as much you know Um, or we you know we put ourselves out there Uh, sorry we put ourselves out there less you know because we're comfortable so one of and maybe this this is one for schools as well but sitting with discomfort is such a powerful thing Um, 
and learning that the, that those feelings will pass. So all of those feelings that I felt when I did um, my first class, um, I mean, they're really uncomfortable. But then you, when you learn to sit with that, I mean, I could have ran out the door, but learning to sit with that um, shows you that actually this feeling is going to pass. And indeed, the next time I go, well, then that feeling will diminish and it'll get better and better yeah. and better. But even then, I'm in this class, I feel like a complete numpty, but I'm not going to feel like that forever. And I survived, you know, so even if you're feeling terrible in a time, you'll be OK. I think a good way for a lot of people to relate is like the gyms are quite popular these days. Yeah. But like the first time you go into a gym, you feel so out of your comfort zone. You're yeah. like, oh, my God, I don't belong in here. Um, so self-conscious. But it doesn't take long with a bit of consistency where you get to the point where you like feel like, oh, this is my gym. Mm. You know, who's this person using this weight rack? Yeah, <laughs> this newbie. Yeah, yeah. Um, that shift quite, happens quite quickly. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's a good example uh, for people yeah. that people can relate to. Um, yeah, and uh, it's just so healthy too. I think always try to get out of your comfort zone as you age. And maybe it's the lack of getting out of your comfort zone that makes us a bit uh, cognitively stiff because mm. um, we're just following the same patterns and in many ways we're, we're acting out automatically throughout the day yeah um on autopilot mm. when it's so important to keep the mind engaged and um challenged yeah would you think yeah definitely yeah. definitely we do get very comfortable i think and comfort's a beautiful thing at the same time it's easy <laughs> it is easy it's uh yeah it's very um Seductive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, and, you know, I even though it's just myself, because I would always like try to treat uh, reading, you know, with like massive importance. Mm. I just see it as this yeah. thing that's just like, it's not a desire that I, I do for pleasure. It's like a necessity to keep my mind sharp and keep myself educated. But I haven't been reading a lot the last uh, two months. Mm. And I've been trying to cultivate it again now. Um, and, there's been no natural desire to read mm. like this massive resistance to actually sit down with the book. And if I didn't have the awareness, I could nearly see how I could convince myself that I'm not a reader anymore. Mm. Um, like I'm not a reader. I, yeah. can, I can see how I could convince myself because I've no desire yeah. and I'm struggling. Even when I actually sit down, I'm finding it hard to maintain attention. Mm. Um, and it just makes me think about all the people that have said to me that they're not readers. Yeah. Thinking the same thing and going through the same process. And it's actually when I sit down and just cultivate the habit that I get into the flow and mm. uh, I really, you know, I sink back into it and I'm able to read comfortably. Mm. Um, do you find yourself enjoying it then when you've made yourself do it? Yeah, exactly. Right. Once, yeah. So once I sit down and I might get through the first five, six pages, mm. I'll often sink into it. But sometimes getting through them first couple of pages can be like, oh God, Torture. I hate this. <laughs> yeah. Like this is, but it's like my under, my, it's, I suppose it's my reference point to, yeah past periods of time where I've read so many books over a period of time and enjoyed it and been in flow and been excited about it so I know that I have it in me mm. but if I hadn't got that past reference point to that experience of myself yeah. I could easily have just been like oh, I'm not a reader it's not my thing it's not my thing yeah you know and uh, I think that's hilarious and um, just speaks to maybe what we're talking about here yeah. in terms of developing skills or and doing, selling yourself short and selling yourself short yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, what, what do you think is the highest impact action that someone can take, uh, to, uh, cultivate awareness over themselves? God, it's a big question, isn't it? It is. Or one of them. 
For me, I think maybe meditation. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking about along the same lines. It's, it's um, again, just noticing. But what's the person's mechanism to notice? So for some, it could be meditation, which is when you put yourself in, a, in, in the perfect position um, to be able to foster that. You know, you're yeah. sitting with your thoughts. Um, and then for others, it might be something like journaling where they're getting to write things out. So some, some people might be more visual rather than kind of, um, you know, a, a thinker in that way or, you know, yeah. um, or yoga, something like that, when you're becoming aware of your and connected with your body and your breath. Um, but I suppose the umbrella thing is, is just, um, the noticing, the, the, noticing. St- the starting to see the patterns that come up. Yeah. Mm. So it could be even that. Instead of running running with music, you run without music, mm. and you just start thinking about where your body is yeah. and noticing that. And Becoming mindful. Become mindful, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's great. Um, look, I I, I want to kind of touch on you know um, what you decided to specialize in mm. and, and the work that you've been doing yourself yeah. around um, uh, autism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think specifically. So, uh, did you know? early on in your studies or later on in your studies that was the field you wanted to specialize in? No, I didn't. Um, I, so I suppose just to touch on my training, um, I do a three year clinical training to become a clinical psychologist. And in that I train in with adults, with children and adolescents, older adults and people with, um, physical and intellectual disabilities. So when you finish, you're qualified to work in kind of whatever area you want to work in, um, be that disabilities, mental health, etc. Um, and I, before I started uh, training, I worked as an assistant psychologist in a practice that worked, um, that did autism assessments. And the my supervisor there, the psychologist, I thought she was amazing. She was just, had this brilliant eye and a great way about her. And she seemed to know, everything there was to know. And I was like, that's it. I want to be her. Um, I really want to be kind of a, a master of something, you know, rather than a jack of all trades. I want to specialize. I want to be good at something. Um, and then throughout my training, I was like, no, I think that would be a bit boring for me, actually, if I only worked in one area. Um, so the place where I work um, is with children and adolescents. So I work with autistic or um, neurodivergent children and also neurotypical so not autistic children but um what has given me a lot of pleasure I think and um meaning is working with the autistic children so I do lots of autism assessments there um and I kind of came to this um to that service that I work in because I could um work with different children so I could do assessments on t- some days and therapy on other days and kind of keep it fresh while also working in an area I was really interested in um, and had been for a couple of years. And in terms of uh, so neurodivergent that doesn't necessarily mean that someone is it, autistic? No so neurodivergent is um, just a brain difference so differing from the norm and that could be autism that could describe something like ADHD an intellectual dif- uh, disability, a learning difficulty like dyslexia, for example. 
or dyspraxia, which is um, a coordination disorder. So it's, it's a big, um, excuse me, big umbrella, big umbrella term. But um, autism, I suppose, is what I'd specialize in or um, what's most common. Yeah. How is autism defined in, uh, you know, the, the field? Well, Darren, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, not just a field, it's a minefield, I think, because right. what the diagnostic criteria um, stipulates or, you know, what, what a lot of people think is that it's this um, bad thing and there's, you know, it's full of difficulties and all of this kind of stuff. So um, what the diagnostic criteria would say are things like difficulty with communication and bad eye contact and, um, you know, difficulty with this and challenge with that and, you know, they're bad at socialising and interacting with other people. Um, and what this kind of movement has, has happened in the last couple of years is this neurodiversity affirmative approach. So that's seeing people who are neurodivergent as having all of these strengths rather than pathologizing it. So when I think about autism, what I'm thinking about is all the strengths that a person has and framing it as differences. So rather than a person um, having bad eye contact, they might have a preference for not making eye contact. Mm. Or instead of them having bad uh, or poor communication, they might communicate differently. So what you might see is somebody who... Um, you know, you might have a neurotypical, so a not autistic person communicating in in a particular way, which when you break it down might be waffly or ambiguous, or you might have somebody saying yes when they mean no. And someone who's autistic might just communicate more directly or honestly say what they mean. Um, whereas that's just, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong or right with either of them. Um, I mean, neither is right, but the, the person who's autistic often gets... Um, chastised I suppose or told yeah. told that they're wrong for communicating differently when it's not wrong it's just different isn't it yeah um or likewise there's maybe communication or social communication differences rather than difficulties um so somebody who's not autistic may like to spend their time with other people um and somebody who's autistic may be very happy in their own company so rather than being I have my air quotes on here but a loner or, you know, aloof, perhaps they're just very happy doing their own thing and there's nothing wrong with that. What we might call an introvert, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone without maybe uh, a diagnostic or diagnosis of autism yeah. who just likes to spend a lot of time with themselves. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. Ha have a social battery that might drain a little quicker. Yeah. Or similarly, there's, um, you might say, um, again, this is just one of those communication differences that neurotypical people might make loads of small talk, lots of chit chat and feel this need to fill a silence. So when you're standing in an elevator or in a queue, you have to talk about the weather or yeah. you know, comment on, on how chilly it is when you walk into a room. Mm. Whereas an autistic person, and I'm generalizing, so this isn't every autistic person, um, but many would say, actually, I don't really see the point of small talk. You yeah. know, why would I need to fill a silence? And that's actually quite peculiar, you know, in itself that you would feel the need to, to fill a silence yeah. just for the sake of it. Yeah, I mean, um, think about it objectively. Own, yeah. yeah, yeah, because your own uncomfortableness to mm. deal with silence in that moment mm. and your impulsiveness to actually express yourself and have an opinion. Yeah. You'll like say yeah. something yeah. that really has no depth yeah. for the sake of just filling space. That's it. And you, and you might think, well, is that actually just 
you know, that connection part where it's not always about filling space. Maybe you want to connect. And that's not to say that an autistic person doesn't want to connect, but maybe they want to do that in their own way. So rather than doing it via small talk, they might um, talk about the stuff that they're really interested in. So rather than wasting their breath on something that they don't feel is that important, they might have, have you know, this amazing interest in something and they want to share that with you. And they're connecting by talking about the stuff that they love. Um, Whereas you as a neurotypical person might say, well, actually, that doesn't really that's not how I communicate or I'm not that interested. So let's shut off the, the, the conversation. Yeah. Um, whereas the autistic person can get the blame then for communication in, in a different way when actually it's perfectly valid. And if there's two autistic people perhaps communicating together, that's magical because, you know, maybe if they have the same interest and they're talking about the same thing, well, then it flows and it's great and there's connection there. So there's nothing wrong with an autistic mm. person or the way that they communicate. It's just perhaps that it's different in some ways. How do you perceive um, the general perception towards, or how, what is the general perception towards autism mm. in uh, society today? I mean, I think a lot of, I suppose we can be intimidated by things that we're, we don't know about and we don't know a lot about autism. And before I started working in the practice I work in now, I didn't know a lot. Um, and I've done a lot of, learning. So again, it's me in this little bubble talking about autism and assuming that we're all on a a neurodiversity affirmative wavelength and and not everybody is. But we do have these misconceptions that people who are autistic don't make eye contact or they're not sociable, they don't have friends or they're, um, they might do kind of overt behaviours like flapping their hands. um, And some people do, but that's not a scary thing or a bad thing. In fact, it's a really powerful tool that autistic people might use to regulate and feel good. Yeah. You know, where does that perception come from? Is that how it's been conveyed in media? Yeah, I guess so. And it, it's a, a difference, isn't it? And differences can be uncomfortable and scary. Yeah. You know. Definitely when someone doesn't fit into the um, social norms that you're used to or have been conditioned to yeah. navigate in. Mm. Um, how far back does the research uh, go on autism or like, you know, is it a recently kind of research field or you know god i'm not sure when it when the research on autism started um but i know that the neurodiversity affirmative stuff is quite recent yeah gotcha so i think that that term was only coined in i think the last 20 years or something and it's not even mainstream yeah you know um but what's lovely is the autistic community are are really putting themselves forward and and talking about how they would like it framed um, by saying, hang on a second, don't pathologize us, you know. Yeah. Um, what pathologize means um, to categorize or to negatively categorize? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, make it into an illness of sorts. Gotcha. You know. Um, Put it in this illness box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When in fact, it's just a way of being. It's just yeah. a, a different way of processing, of seeing the world. Um, and is that, is that on a, a brain level? That it's yeah. So and and do we know how the no. difference there, or is that only identified through uh, assessments and behavioural assessments? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we don't even know where autism comes from. 
we know that there's a genetic component, but there's many different genes that that are kind of that come into play. So it's there's not kind of a clear cut answer. What we do know is that someone, if someone's autistic, they're born autistic. So they always have been and they always will be. So it's not anything that a parent does um, that that will make a person autistic. Um, yeah, agree. Um, that's, I suppose, a relief for parents who mm. maybe uh, thought it might be in because I, I I think with autism, um, maybe it's a scary thing for a lot of parents initially mm. to to realize that their kids are autistic. Mm-hmm. Would that be you know because it, it ultimately is, a, is a, my child is different or there's something yeah. wrong with my child and I have air quotes there yeah. saying that as well and that can be quite um, intimidating mm-hmm. for a parent. Yeah. Do you find that with parents who are dealing with that early on? Yeah, yeah, definitely and. Um, while we talk a lot about the strengths that a person has, um, and like of, of which there are so many, you know, there's so many amazing things that come out of being autistic. It can still be really challenging for a parent. And I don't want to invalidate those feelings because, you know, again, if you're autistic, there are differences and there are additional challenges. Um, and autism is technically a disability. Um, but it's not that the person themselves, um, that there's something so wrong with the person themselves that they are disabled. I hope I can explain this right, but it's more that society is set up for yeah. neurotypical people. So yeah, absolutely. by virtue of being in, in a world built for somebody else, that's disabling. So for example, somebody who's autistic might have sensory sensitivities, which might be to... Um, bright lights or loud noises or touches or touches exactly certain fabrics yeah exactly so by going on out onto Grafton Street when it's really busy or a supermarket that's you know um, chaotic and there's loud music or Dublin Airport that's really challenging whereas if um, the supermarket was a nice low light um, you know, no music or calming music environment and it was all very calm with not loads of people in it, that's not disabling. You know, that's mm. a, an autistic person. Um, and again, I'm aware that I'm generalizing here, but um, an autistic person might find that perfectly fine, a perfectly fine environment to be in if it's adapted for their needs. Yeah. Whereas it wasn't, it was built for a neurotypical person. So that's the, the challenging part. It almost seems um, that... Maybe like uh, people with sensory issues, issues like their senses are just fine tuned mm. a little bit differently. Yeah. Maybe um, the sensitivity to certain sounds is dialed up where it's processed in the brain to be louder or more intense. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about this thing before the podcast, how um, like the our senses, particularly our sense of smell and our sense of hearing, um, are such powerful and influential senses that we might take for granted mm. um, and how even uh, for um, I suppose generalizing here if we hear a, a particularly harsh sound that can be so disruptive to our mind and um, maybe even our ability to sleep or uh, could wake us up uh, in the morning abruptly mm. uh, maybe uh, or smell where we get a smell of uh, someone else and we just can't even engage with them we can't even talk to them mm. um so i just find it uh, intriguing there to think about that and how it relates to uh, those with autism and potentially how their senses are maybe a little bit 
tune a little bit differently, mm. um, which obviously isn't necessarily right or wrong because yeah. that in itself is, I suppose, subjective. Is it? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that in society perceptions are, you know, slow to change, um, are changing for the better? Both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, I'm in this lo- lovely yeah. neurodiversity strengths based practice. Um, and it's easy to think that the whole world is as well, but it's not like that. Um, but what's been, I think, it, you know, people are coming around and what's so powerful, I think, is the parents who come to us um, get that, that this kind of spiel in, in that we talk about the child's strengths. We don't say they're bad at socialising or they're bad at this or they're doing this wrong because they're not. We talk about their differences. Yes, the challenges, but also the strengths that they have that other children wouldn't have necessarily. So my God, isn't your child amazing? Um, and I don't want this to sound insincere because, this, you know, this is a really genuine look at, the, at a child's strengths. Like how amazing is your child that they can really that they can develop these amazing passions or, you know, that they can throw themselves into their interests and really deeply focus on them when somebody else can't do that. You know, that's a strength that they have or their attention to detail or, you know, visual perception. That's incredible. They can do that. Um, and other people can't. So what we say to parents as well, what, what we try and, and make them, let them know is that your child is going to take the lead of the people around you. Um, of the people around them. So if you can see their strengths, you know, and if your child is in a school mm. where their peers know that there's nothing wrong with this child, you know, that maybe they're a little bit different, um, in, perhaps in some ways, or the teacher or the school, you know, they, they're they very accepting and inclusive of people of, of all, you know, abilities. Um, if the parents aren't thinking of autism as uh death sentence which is certainly not or something bad or sad well then the child will grow up seeing their strengths seeing that they're great seeing their superpowers that they have that other people don't have um and then being able to advocate for themselves in a very confident way yeah you know by saying god on friday night there's this family party or whatever but actually i think my social battery is too drained for that uh, or it's going to, I'm going to have sensory overload when I go there. So I'm not just not going to do that. I'm going to mind myself. Whereas if we thought of them as, you know, you know, they need to go to the party and they just need to get over themselves and they need to, um, be good at socializing and talk to granny and all of this kind of stuff, or we're just doing that person a disservice. Whereas if we can be a bit more understanding and then help them be more compassionate to themselves, life gets a bit easier. Yeah. And enables confidence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it just reminds me of like what we're talking about there with the growth fixed versus mm. fixed mindset and the power of words and how words influence our perception and behavior and how that has such a massive impact on how the people who do follow our lead. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it's uh, super important, clearly. Um, just thinking in terms of like assessments, because I remember us chatting about this before and I think you might have given me a number of actually how many people in Ireland mm. um, are, are, would be autistic. Mm-hmm. One, one in 68. One in 68. Yeah, with the number rising because we're becoming better at identifying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
gone. Yeah, and that's a pretty, um, that's a lot of people. Yeah. As opposed to, or at least like I think like a big part of the general population would think about autism as just being a small cohort of people in Ireland mm-hmm. or in the society. Um, but that's fascinating. And I wonder, is it even more because assessments are quite maybe uh, expensive to uh, get done, are they? Yeah. So yeah. Prohibitively, yeah. Yeah. So that, that stat there, um, one in 60, Eight, yeah. 68, is that based off the amount of people that have been assessed or is that generalizing throughout society based off the amount yeah. of people that have been? The, these are assessed. So that's, um, I mean, you're dead right. So the options to get assessed are, it's really hard, you know, um, what happens is you can try and get a public assessment, but you're waiting three years, perhaps, in some places, or you go for a private assessment and it's really expensive. Um, but, um, so, I mean, it's it's quite tough to get an assessment in the first place, but what's happening as well is um, what assessments used to be and, and still are, but are shifting away from is... Um, so they're kind of behavioural assessments. You're, you're doing an interview, for example, with the parents or if it's um, an adult or teenager with, with them plus parents. And then there's the behavioural part as well. Um, but it's really tough because um, lots of people will come in, autistic people, kids will come in and what you're trying to do is set up these um, scenarios or sort of opportunities for connection, communication. And then you might try and uh, look at these diagnostic criteria but the diagnostic criteria often look at the difficulties and the challenges which you often don't see so that's why you do have to get lots of information from lots of different places like going into schools and talking to teachers and, and all that kind of other stuff um, but where it gets really difficult is around girls because these diagnostic criteria were, were built around boys where you'd see perhaps less eye contact be made or um, more kind of behavioural Uh, presentations of autism like flapping hands Um, whereas with girls it's entirely different or it can be entirely different so what we see with autistic girls is that they can you know dispel all of these myths so lots of autistic girls are um, chatty and sociable and witty and funny and full of banter and make loads of eye contact and lots of girls are like that so they're just you know funny and witty and, and love being around people but what we often see is what's called masking or camouflaging. And what that is, is um, perhaps this autistic girl might have these social differences. So they may not have a preference for using eye contact. But what they've done is, I mean, girls are really cute. So they've noticed that people around them make eye contact. So that's what I should be doing. Or um, the girls around me um, make you know, use this kind of body language or they arrange their face in a certain way or they laugh in a certain way. So that's what I should be doing. Or I've noticed that actually small talk is what I should be doing to connect with my peers rather than talking about the stuff that I'm really interested in. So what they're doing is masking who they are or, I mean, as well with with all the, the body stuff. So they might want to do a movement, like a repetitive movement, which is really nice and soothing for them when they're feeling stressed. But they mask and they don't do that for fear of being seen as different. Um, So what you see then is girls who have, again, been autistic all their life, but 
have been told from a very young age that they shouldn't do these behaviours or they should behave in a different way or look a different way. And they've um, camouflaged themselves and kind of moulded themselves to fit a certain way, the neurotypical way, um, which means that they slip through the radar or under the radar so they don't get picked up, um, you know, and assessed until their teens perhaps um, or even into adulthood, which yeah. is, is really tough. But if, they, if they've become so good at mm. fitting in or masking, how does the assessment identify yeah. if they, you know, how, how do you catch that in the assessment that it, they're masking? I suppose you have to have that multifaceted assessment. So you might have a girl who comes in and is laughing and joking with you and stuff. And um, I mean, part of the assessment, again, it's not to catch people out, but it's more to provide opportunities to to see kind of a range of of kind yeah. of communication styles or whatever. But you might have a girl who's making loads of eye contact um, or is responding to your jokes or doesn't think in a literal way or make small talk or whatever it is. And you're going, well, that doesn't fit into the criteria. Um, but what you might notice is by the end of the assessment, she's exhausted because she's put so much effort into doing all of that stuff that she's really, really drained. Or her parents might say afterwards, like, God, she had to go home and just sleep. Or she went home and she had a mel- wow. meltdown because she was so dysregulated. So it was massive uh, demand on her mm, cognitive yeah. Uh, um, output. Yeah. Plus, you're also, um, if you can, going into the school to do a school observation. Plus, you're talking to the teacher and getting information from them. Plus, you're talking to the parents. Um, so so it's not just seeing the child. Um, it's lots of the, the, the kind of the reported stuff by the people around them. Yeah. In more like natural environments, yeah, as opposed to feeling like the pressure of being in this professional environment and having to perform, yeah, exactly. So that obviously plays into the cost, you know, because mm. it seems like it's a pretty big operation to actually uh, do due diligence in assessing mm-hmm. someone um, at this age or younger, maybe. Um, and plus, with an assessment, you'd always have two professionals, so you'd have a psychologist plus speech yeah. and language therapy or occupational therapy as well. And it seems quite delicate because um, it is largely down to observation. Um, or, I wouldn't say large. I mean, it's a big part. Big part absolutely. And you'd never diagnose someone without having met them and spent time with them. Um, but it's rigorous. Oh, know? yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it's um, uh, in alignment with a rigorous mm. framework, it seems. Yeah. And we do a cognitive assessment as well, which is an assessment of their thinking. So their memory, their problem solving, all of that kind of stuff as well. And what indications from a cognitive assessment? Again, you don't always see it, but what you might see is a slower processing speed. Um, So processing speed is the speed at which you take in information and then you think about it, process it, understand it, and you're ready to use it again. Um, And perhaps slower working memory. So working memory is a type of short-term memory where you take in that information and then you have to do something with it and then get ready to use it again. So that could be memorizing your shopping list. And as you're walking around the supermarket, you're thinking, okay, I've got the bananas. I don't need that anymore. I've got the bread. I don't need that. So again, you're you're using the information in your mind while you're remembering it. So sometimes you see lower scores in those areas, but not always. Just short term thinking or short term memory, is it? Yeah, type of short term memory right. is working memory. Um, sometimes you see those two kind of 
lower than their other cognitive scores, but not always. Yeah. Um, and there's a really important thing to remember, which is that if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person because it's so varied. Like there can be, there are, of course, um, common behaviors, common traits, which is why they're diagnostic criteria. Um, but it's so different. And, you know, it's not an intellectual disability. However, some autistic people have intellectual disabilities and it's not, you know, not everybody who's autistic is is a genius or is gifted. However, lots of people are. So it's, there, there's no, um, you know, you can't, you can't kind of deem somebody autistic just based on their cognitive abilities. Yeah, so you have to treat each mm -hmm. person with autism uh, in a very individualist ba individualistic basic yeah. uh, basis. Yeah. And, and just on that as well, there's, uh, like I was saying about the autistic community, really kind of paving the way forward. Um, it's great. So they're empowered and making these decisions themselves. Yeah, because what you'd often find is medics and, and clinicians have made the decisions for them. Whereas what the autistic community are saying now is, is rather than calling me a person with autism, they would like to be called an autistic person. So the language is what you call identity first language. So autistic mm. person rather than person first, which is person with autism. Yeah, person that almost seem, makes it seem like an illness. Yeah, exactly. Like a person with autism. Yeah. As if it's this thing that can be solved or should be solved. Yeah, yeah. So what they would say is, you know, I'm autistic. It's part of my identity. It's me. This is me forever. It's not something that I can pick up and put down. Yeah. So, you know, to use that terminology. We we spoke about uh, Blind Boy's podcast mm. around him. Yeah. Um, I think he said that uh, someone was listening to him or a couple of people reached out based oh, yeah. off behavior. <laughs> and that through that, his curiosity got the better of him and yeah. he got assessed and it proves that he has uh, um, autism, mm -hmm. which I think was a shock for a lot of people, including myself, because my own perceptions of uh, someone with autism or what autism might have been mm -hmm. uh, were completely contradicted by uh, Blind Boy. Yeah. You know, in his behavior, he seemed like, you know, first of all, he has a podcast where he's mm -hmm. talking to a large audience. Um, he speaks quite well. Mm -hmm. He does his research. He, he seems like a introverted extrovert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of people were probably shocked. You know, and if you haven't listened to that episode, it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. Because it's very insightful. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I think a lot of people came away from it. I know I came away from it thinking that, oh God, I think I'm autistic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> just based off some of the uh, yeah. behaviors he spoke about, yeah. like not fitting in in school or like being rebellious from mm -hmm. a young age or obsessiveness with information. Um, and then it got me thinking and like looking into it and what I kind of uncovered was actually we all kind of exist on these spectrums a little bit. Mm. Would that be appropriate to say? That's a, a kind of a controversial one, actually. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that comes up a lot because I, I remember, you know, when I was saying um, I worked as an assistant psychologist in this autism practice years ago and this um, person was describing that when they read a book, they'll they can't, they don't do anything else. They're just so focused. They're really hyper-focused in this book. And I was like, ah, I was like, that's me. Um, and then I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, we're all a bit on the spectrum. And actually, again, thinking about what the autistic community would say is, no, you're not. Uh, yeah. We're not all just on the spectrum. Actually, if you're autistic, that is a particular experience and, and way of, of being, way of processing the world that autistic people have. And they would say, again, not everybody, but they might, they would say it's actually diminishing or dismissing 
our challenges, our specific set of challenges and skills to say that everyone has a bit of that. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. But absolutely, you know, par- a part of being autistic, there, you know, there are those kind of very common human experiences like throwing yourself into a book or liking things in a particular way that we can identify with, but that doesn't make us, you know, we don't share the same experience, I yeah. suppose, because we don't have those challenges because we're neurotypical um, and exist in that neurotypical world. And and that's important. It's a very important point. Um, and it seems like, I don't know, I'm getting the impression that there's almost like a sense of pride in the autistic community about who they are. Mm. Um, and that's great to see as well. Growing, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's, um, I... I so again, I work in a particular practice with a particular approach and I did a bit of work um, a while ago, which put me in contact with reports dating from, um, God, you know, pe- people who are young adults now. So they would have had um, assessments, some recently, but some kind of a long time ago. And having read those reports, um, they're quite jarring to me having, uh, you know, our, the reports that I would write would be uh, constructed in a different, more positive way, and seeing, I, you know, it, it may be sad actually thinking, God, there's this whole set of of autistic um, teenagers and adults and older adults now who would describe themselves because th- there was um, a bit of writing that the people had done themselves as well. They would describe their difficulties and that they were bad at this and bad at that. And I was going, No, you're not. Mm. You're not. And I, I um, just wanted to, you know, to. I couldn't obviously, but, you know, reach out and go, God, no, like, let's have a conversation about this and let's help you see that you're not bad at anything or there's nothing wrong with you, that it's just, there's a difference in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that for sure. Um, and that's just language, mm, the power exactly. of language. Yeah, yeah. And I think psychology even as a whole, like, uh, you know, and how it was birthed, it was like to focus on the issues, was mm. it? Mm. You know, like what was actually wrong with a person. Yeah. Like to solve the issues of the mind, mm. the negative aspects. And then if you look at the birth of positive psychology, it's it's much more recent. Yeah. And even questionable, is it, in terms of its credibility, mm. you know, in the whole field of psychology. Yeah. Um, that question comes up more rather than like, what's wrong with you? It's what's happened to you. So... Yeah, what's happened to you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is a very um, subtle but powerful difference. Distinction. because Distinction, exactly. Because um, by saying what's wrong with you, it's like something that, I don't know, can't be solved or mm, yeah. as opposed to... It puts the I'm, onus on you. Yeah, like you're responsible for this or, you know, as opposed to what's happened to you, it's some explanation behind yeah. it. Um, and I think that's quite an important thing to touch on is just the you know term psychology and how that it's a massive umbrella and you know to be a psychologist doesn't mean that you just give therapy Mm. like there's all these different fields of psychology Uh, a lot of psychologists do go to um pursue psychology in order to work in therapy but Mm -hmm. um there's many different fields like uh Maybe you can touch on some as well, but um, developmental psychology, which would be uh, research around uh, the development of the brain, mm. from what I understand. Um, I suppose uh, positive psychology is another one. Um, but there may be like seven or eight different fields that you can kind of venture out into if you do decide to uh, study psychology, many of which might not ever uh, require you to interact with a person or give any form of therapy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's so broad. I mean, even thinking about my undergraduate degree, you do a degree in psychology and then you have a degree in psychology and then you're not a psychologist. <laughs> so there's more to do after that. But I mean, it opens up lots of doors. So lots of people from my class would have gone on to be teachers or, you know, worked in HR or, or become doctors and, you know, really pivoted. Um, but it's so broad. So even taking a step back um, when you're thinking about sort of, you know, mental health, um, what your options are even at the start is, do I go into psychology or do I go into something else? So um, there's a distinction to be made between psychology and um, psychiatry, for example. So a psychiatrist would qualify as a medical doctor and then specialize in psychiatry. And um, they would then have the power to prescribe, should that be relevant. A psychologist would, after a degree in or equivalent in, in psychology, might then go into several different subsets. So they might go on then and do further um kind of academic research and spend their life doing um, research, which is brilliant and needed, I think, when you're thinking about um, using evidence-based practices and therapies. You could go down the clinical psychology route, which is what I do. So again, that's um, working with a range of people in terms of mental illness or mental health or disabilities. And um, that's assessment formulating so seeing what's going on for somebody and then treatment so that's usually therapy um there can be counseling psychology which is more around the, the well quite an overlap between clinical and counseling but it's more around the therapy part educational which is uh, lots of psychologists do it so they work with children and adolescents but often based in schools health psychology sports psychology forensic psychology which is around the criminal justice system um and then industrial organization is another one, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which well is remembered. like how to, uh, uh, I suppose, cultivate an environment that's conducive to uh, optimal productivity. Yeah. And output in, businesses, in the yeah. businesses, yeah. Um, which is more recent. Yeah. Uh, but fascinating, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose that touches on how we're kind of like similar in in, in many ways in our psychology mm. and the view. Uh, build an environment in a particular way that uh, we'll react um, uh, in a way that is conducive to the growth of the business. Mm. Um, I don't really know like the methods that an industrial uh, organizational psychologist might implement in an environment, but um, I suppose just like, something that comes to mind is like having lunch together or uh, positive reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I don't, I'm not an organizational psychologist. I think I've done a module back in yeah. undergrad or something. But yeah, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's offering, uh, often fostering good team dynamics, teamwork, um, conflict resolution, um, you know, in terms of being a manager, how do I, um, you know, work with people in an optimal way, foster, um, what's the word, non-enthusiasm, but kind of morale. Mm. Um, Which is all linked to motivation and yeah, um, yeah. even influencing the environment and the atmosphere, mm. whether it's a positive one or a toxic one. And mm. uh, that all stems from interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. And uh, relationships from the manager mm. uh, and the company. Um, so it seems so appropriate 
and relevant that you would have a psychologist working in your office space. Yeah. Um, which I think might be popular in this, the tech scene, but not so much maybe uh, outside of the tech scene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, you know, it's a broad, broad field and it's probably one of the reasons why you have to spend so long <laughs> studying it to get to a specialized yeah. uh, place where you can, um, you know, like 11 years, you said, was mm-hmm. it? That's... Uh, Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a enormous commitment, yeah. you know, because so many changes you go through in that amount of time. Oh, yeah. God, you know? I always think uh, I put psychology on my CAO back when I was, what, 17. And I think, God, like, I wish someone had told me. I wish <laughs> I, I wish I had, of my own volition, done the, done the research yeah. to know that this takes a while now to qualify. But, yeah. you know, I wouldn't change it. I'd maybe warn people off it. Warn now, people. Yeah. <laughs> I'd let them know what they're in yeah, for. Let them know for sure. Yeah. Um, because it is it is it's huge. I don't mm. know if there's many other degrees that require such a long period uh, of commitment. Well, I mean, maybe, I mean, if you think of other things like medicine or law or yeah. accountancy, you're still stuck doing exams and all that kind of stuff. What I would say is different about psychology is... Um, the clinical psychology in specific is the uncertainty. So um, to qualify, you have to do a, a three-year uh, doctorate in clinical psychology. But until a couple of years ago, so to, 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 to get in or even to get an interview, you have to have uh, worked as an assistant psychologist with a range of populations. So for some courses, it's nearly a tick box that you... Um, need to have worked with children and with adults or older adults and people with disabilities and done research and volunteered and this, that and the other. And to work as an assistant psychologist wasn't a paid grade up until a few years ago. So those 11 years of mine, some of those was spent building up research, but not paid. So you're there working for free, hoping to get into clinical psychology, which is then paid while you're training but until then, you're not paid. So that's your only hope is to get onto the course. But there's so few places in Ireland, like um, applic- um, places granted, um, that it's just one big rat race. So you could spend a couple of years applying, which is the norm to actually get on a place. But there's no guarantee that you'll ever get on. Even though you actually would have ticked all the boxes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because of the lack of spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you might get on, you might interview and they'll think you're great, but they'll only have 20 places and you're the 21st. And you might say, well, great, then I'll definitely get on next year. No, there might be another brilliant 20 people. So it's not always, and you have to constantly tell yourself this, is it's not about you necessarily or you as a candidate, but it's about who is beside you because there's lots of great people, you know. Why is there so few spaces? Funding. Funding. All all funding, yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's, I mean, it's, it's such a shame because it gatekeeps the... The profession then, because what I, I was hugely fortunate um, in that, thankfully, the, the positions are paid now. But when they weren't paid, I could live with my parents and yeah. um, could afford to work for free in that way, whereas not everybody has that luxury, which means that you end up with a load of psychologists who come from a similar background who could afford to to work for free for a little mm. bit while they're awaiting getting on the course and that pushes out all these brilliant people from different and diverse backgrounds which and that doesn't help anybody does it you know when you're coming when you want a, a psychologist or a therapist you need diversity don't you absolutely for relatability which mm. is such an important part of getting a therapist yeah 
Uh, I think seeing a therapist is not so black and white where you just go see a therapist. Yeah. Like the chemistry between you is the connection is yeah. is the foremost. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's massive, actually. Now you say um, one thing I always say to people, if, if anyone th- is thinking about going to therapy, is that one, it's hugely daunting and that's OK. But also that when you go to a therapist and maybe you try it out and you don't, you might click with that person immediately. Great. You might not. And that's okay as well. And to think, actually, it's a bit like a Goldilocks where you have to try out a couple of people, maybe different styles and, and, and do that a couple of times before you find the person who you click with and you feel comfortable with. So not to give up on the first go because it's not perfection immediately. Yeah, for sure. And I, I've said that to people I've talked to yeah. as well, because you could easily go into a psychologist and uh, you might not click, there might be no chemistry and you come out and you think you're wasting your time and what's the point and mm-hmm. it's not for you. Um, but the next person you go to, you could click with so well and um, you could enjoy the session. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's really important to point out. What's like that seems like such a big issue with the lack of spaces for the doctorate. Like, what's the solution there? Do you think, or is there any talks money. of this, money? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's lots of um, campaigns in the psychology world to give more funding, give more funding, give more. Because, I mean, what 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 you see on the news is three year waiting lists for autism assessments and massive waiting lists for therapy and CAMs. So children, children's mental health services going. Uh, with posts unfilled and all of this stuff. So there's these massive gaps, massive demand on the services, but they're not putting the money in on kind of the back end to put psychologists yeah, through training. The infrastructure mm-hmm. to make yeah. it more accessible. Yeah. And what's even more unfair is that clinical psychologists uh, get paid while they train for those three years and they get uh, most of their fees paid. Whereas at the same time, there's counselling psychologists and educational psychologists who will do three-year doctorate, but they and they can off go into a lot of the same jobs that clinical psychologists would do. So we all end up working in the same practices, a lot of us, but they don't get paid and they have to pay all of their fees. Wow. Yeah. Why? Just it's categorised as yeah. I mean differently. Yeah, I think I I I'm Seems actually outrageous. oh it is it's it's just not fair and. You know, I, I worked in a practice where I was working with an incredible, well, bunch of, of of educational psychologists and we did the exact same job, but I had been paid. And, yeah. And, and that's not fair. No. You know, no. so, so there's, there's work being done, you know, and pressure being put on the government to change that, but it kind of falls on deaf ears. We need more psychologists in the government. We need more psychologists <laughs> in the government. Actually working. Yeah. I feel like it... Um, the ideal uh, government body would be a mix of like academics, psychologists, scientists, economists, economists, yeah. people in uh, fitness and health and well-being all coming together and like delegating mm. as appropriate. Um, it just kind of seems the most obvious uh, and effective way to uh, make these big decisions and allocate funding uh, as needed. Mm. Um so I hope that changes for the better. Me too. <laughs> um, <laughs> you and me both. With the blind boy thing, mm. what's your thoughts on him coming out? Did you you listen to that episode? Yeah. Uh, what's your thoughts on, yeah, I suppose someone in his position with such a large audience coming out and, and openly talking about his uh, um, diagnosis with autism? Oh, I think it's amazing. Um, it's brilliant. And you, you see that from 
actually a lot of people recently, like Stephanie Preisner has come out and, and spoken about her diagnosis and um, Christine McGuinness, who's Paddy McGuinness's uh, wife, has talked about her diagnosis and did a documentary. So it's brilliant that it's becoming that bit more mainstream um, to talk about and dispel those myths again um, of the surely they're not autistic, yeah. quite possibly, but I think Blind Boy is brilliant and, you know, he he has um, a very humble down to earth way of about him and way of talking about it as well, um, which is very just very relatable. So, but it clicks, doesn't it? it really it makes sense when he said things like, you know, and this is the same for a lot of people who get diagnosed as an adult, and they're like, ah, so all of that stuff that I did as a child and I've been doing for years and years, ah, oh, it makes sense now. Okay, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just autistic, and for him, that was that light bulb moment where he was like. Of course I do a podcast because I love to um, throw myself into, you know, all the stuff that I find really interesting. And of course, I wanted to find a way to 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 talk about my topics in depth. So it made sense. Or um, what were the other things, you know, use, using the bag like. Yeah, for his identity. Yeah. Not for being it, comfortable. Yeah, exactly. It, it, you know, it's sitting really uncomfortably having to put himself out there and, and make that really direct uh, kind of um social interaction and for him it was easier to wear that mask of his which isn't just a female yeah. thing you know in uh, school as well he gave some examples mm. um, of not I suppose fitting in which is quite common but he got a bit more specific than that he'd act out yeah um, and school is a really tough place to be because um, there might be those for example processing speed or working memory difficulties, which might make it harder to follow instructions. There might be that need for movement when um, so often autistic people need additional movement, like flapping their hands or rocking or just walking up and down or, you know, and, and we all do it, you know, when you tap your leg really fast, that's yeah. stimming. Uh, or, so, rub, or rub your arm, you exactly, know, you're in a conversation yeah. and you're feeling worried or... Yeah, yeah, um, flicking your anger, fingers, yeah. rubbing your, your yeah. ears. All of that, like that's stimming, which is a self-stimulatory behavior. And that's just kind of regulate, mm. to make yourself feel okay, feel good. Um, and that's a part of being autistic as well. So when you can't do that in school, when you're made to sit down and look at the teacher, then of course you're feeling dysregulated and sometimes you can't follow what's going on. If everything's, you know, because if you're not regulated, you're not paying attention. Yeah. How can you? And then there might be no structure, no routine, you know, you think you have maths class, but actually the Irish teacher walks in and that's really dysregulating because um, structure and stability and predictability makes you feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, well then, you know, everything else goes out the window. Plus there's all the social stuff going on, the eye contact, the, the rowdiness, the social rules and social norms, games. Um, there's all the sensory overload. So the chaos of the yard and the hustle and bustle and people throwing rubbers and it's just it's a really difficult place to be intense yeah so I mean if you're somebody who's autistic um, or has ADHD even and don't know that you do so your needs are not being met you're just being looked at as a disruptive child well then that's really hard if you don't mm. understand yourself and nobody else understands you well then it's tough so yeah of course he was acting out in school because he was just trying to cope. Yeah. Yeah, and he's looking at himself here, what, 20, 30 odd years later going, ah, I wasn't bold. I was 
just trying to keep my head above the water. So like uh, keeping your head above the water because maybe your needs are not being met or you're not being understood. Why is that expressed, do you think, in like acting out? Is that like a way to get attention? Maybe, but um, it's not even acting out, is it? It's like this this person isn't even making a conscious decision to be bold. It's that they're feeling so dysregulated that they don't have a choice. It's a compu- like a compulsive, yeah. you know, I, I need to move. I need to move. Otherwise, yeah. I'm going to explode. So, but moving is seen as a bad thing in school. But mm. if they explode it, you know, what's worse, exploding or you know jumping up and down or or moving or whatever is there other explanations for people with similar behavior do you think in school like uh because i suppose yeah someone in school who might be finds it hard to sit still Mm. and like moves around a lot and find it hard to keep their attention um could that be for other reasons that we know of yeah and i don't want to pathologize everyone who doesn't sit you know but that person might have adhd for example if they have a real, if it's like there's a motor running through them and they might need to move and find it really hard to pay attention. There might be an underlying um, learning disability or difficulty, you know, so somebody might have dyslexia, for example. Yeah. Um, and it's actually really hard to uh, read or write or whatever it is. So to distract from that, they mm. are up and down rather than having to, you know, do the really hard thing. Or they might have slower processing speed, so things are going over their head, and to distract from that, you're you're moving around. Because if you don't, if you've missed the instructions or you don't understand something, well, then it's hard to sit. Or a child might be anxious. You're not being engaged. Yeah, exactly. If you're just being passed over and you've no idea what's going on, it's hard to sit yeah. and sit sit and pay attention. If that's troubling, or you might have um, have anxiety, be anxious, and then you know you're moving as well, just trying to regulate that. Um, or you might just have more movement needs. Mm. You know, you might just be more active. Do you think, um, or do we know that is ADHD or ADD is a attention deficit disorder? So there's ADHD, which is the big umbrella term, right. and underneath that, you might have attention deficit without the hyperactivity, or the hyperactivity part without the attention deficit. Gotcha. Yeah. And are they recognised as um, conditional or what something we're born with, like autism? Uh, you'd be born with that. You'd be born with that? Yeah. So that's not something um, you can find necessarily resolution for? or You'd manage it. You'd manage it. Yeah, so, gotcha. But um, it's, it's built into us. Yeah. So that's, I mean, when you do, in, in the diagnostic criteria, when you're, say, doing an adult assessment, you have to figure out that it's, uh, been persistent over time so this has been present as a child but also across um, settings so are you having these difficulties in school and at home for example but that being said you can also mask difficulties as well because mm-hmm. um, you might have to sit down at home and that, or in school and that's really really challenging and you know disruptive or you might appear as disruptive whereas at home your parents might say okay well you know sit down for three minutes and then go and run around the garden and then come back again and you've got the freedom, you know. But then, of course, your parents would rec- might recognise actually you had all of those movement needs. Um, but to answer your question, when it comes to sort of managing that, it's not something that you cure, you'd manage gotcha. whether that's via yeah. medication or... Meditation. <laughs> me- well, if you can if you can manage meditation. If you can, for sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so medication would help with that uh, or maybe different habits like exercise mm-hmm. potentially could help 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, aid um, in in uh, dealing with our, our management yeah. with, with yeah. that. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, you know, there should be a wider assessment of Ireland and the general population uh, for autism and ADD or some of these kind of, um, uh, I'm not sure how would you categorize conditions. conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because one in 62, I think, is it, that have autism about that. Mm. It's pretty, you know, you can nearly say that most likely each person knows someone or in their circle of friends or family. Without knowing. Without knowing. Yeah. Um, and the more people that are assessed and the more awareness there is just going to be a beneficial thing overall. Mm. Um, I, I feel like maybe there should be more um, structure in school from an early age to identify this. Mm. So like a blind boy is not yeah, yeah. reflecting over his whole life and trying to make sense of his whole past based off this awareness that he has now in his 30s. Mm. Um, seems quite crucial. Yeah, I think it starts with awareness, doesn't it? Yeah. But from the teachers, you know, from parents, but also teachers, whether that, you know, from preschool and primary school teachers as well, that they are trained and adept at, at noticing those differences, especially in girls who will go under that radar, you know? Mm. Yeah, especially was because... Um, that's so interesting that, yeah, the, the difference there, the general difference between uh, amongst uh, women and or boys and girls uh, and masking is uh, quite intriguing. Mm -hmm. You know, the amount of thought that you'll put into this cross-reference in your social dynamics and yeah. you fitting in uh, and how you think you should. Is there anything else that you'd like to point out or like bring up about autism or um, maybe anyone that's listening that might think that or am I autistic or uh, is there someone in my life or is this person, maybe there's someone that comes to mind that they think may be uh, autistic uh, and they might not even know or have awareness around themselves? Um, I think if you're, I always think if anyone's thinking about it, uh, always look into it further. And I don't just mean that about autism. I always think, you know, look, look for answers yeah. if you have them, if you've got questions. Um. I think there's there's such a power in understanding yourself again, whether that's around autism or emotions or, or whatever it is. Um, and while there can be a bit of fear around some of these labels, um, what yeah, what I suppose what, what what we can fear is the label itself. So if this is just me, why do I need to put a name on it? Why do I need to you know go down the assessment route? Um, and what I'd always say is that it's not about slapping a label on you. It's about understanding. And um, if you understand yourself, well, then that leads to more compassion and kindness to yourself and confidence in being yourself, understanding yourself. And again, knowing... And just navigating. Yeah. The, the chaos of being a human being yeah. with a bit more ease. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Um, so it's not about pathologizing who you are if you're autistic, um, it's about understanding yourself yeah. um, and then making your life a bit easier and being able to advocate for yourself rather than suffering through that social event that you don't want to do or that loud supermarket that's really challenging or whatever else and just making your life that bit easier. Um, 
there's also nothing wrong with um or what you know what's perfectly valid is that self-identification as well um and which is a lot lot what a lot of adults do you know when that assessment isn't necessarily um accessible what people will say is you know i i've kind of looked at this set of criteria because as a child you kind of need an assessment and official diagnosis to be able to access services or schools or classrooms or support for adults it's less about support more about understanding so for some people they'll say actually I don't need to do a formal assessment this is something about me and I know it and that's enough Mm -hmm. and some people will want the validation of a formal diagnosis so just to say that it's all valid you know, and it's what's most relevant most Mm. kind of meaningful for you Where's the good uh resource to turn to um, mm. if you want to kind of look into this a bit further yeah I mean for so it, there's no public services uh, if you want an adult autism assessment you have to do it privately so um, there is a place called adult the adult autism practice so that's adultautism.ie um, who I don't know if I should be plugging that or not but that's um the, the place in Ireland that would do adult autism assessments and they would be able to sign point, signpost you um, to different resources and what an assessment looks like. Um, an assessment is all remote, all online, over three sessions, and it's just an interview with you, the person, and another person, like you're a parent if you want, um, but it doesn't have to be. And it's just asking you about your life experiences, your communication preferences, your preferences for socializing, your interests, your hobbies, um, and any kind of sensory needs or, or sensitivities that you might have. Otherwise, if you want to, to just learn more about autism, what I'd suggest is As I Am. Uh, so that's uh, asiam.ie, I think. And um, I'll put show notes uh, to the links. Great. Yeah. Um, in the um, podcast link so people can be able to click on that lovely and um, as I am is, is the National Irish Autism Charity and they, they have lots of information there great um, look Holly it's been an amazing conversation we've been chatting I think over two hours oh, which God. flew by <laughs> um, but uh, so valuable and it's opened my mind up and um, I just want to thank you for taking the time to come on today to have this chat I think we touched on some important topics and um definitely provoked a lot of thinking in myself so I uh, appreciate your time yeah um, it's been a real pleasure yeah and the, the first of uh, many watch this space for uh, Dr. Holly mm, yeah <laughs> and um, if anybody does have questions about autism or where do I start well then they're very you know they're, they're free to to get in touch with yourself mm-hmm. great and where's the best place to reach you on your in- Instagram I will let you know you let you know okay great. I'll put that in the notes so look thanks very much guys um, I'll leave it there and uh, yeah All the best for now. Bye. (laughs) See ya.